Hello, Allie Meekly listener. I feel like you don't think we're real, that we're some sort of deep fake AI drone chat GBT. Yeah, GBT. (laughs) We're something of a Dragon Ball Z recreation (laughs) made by computers. But if you want proof that we're real people, flesh and blood, you should come see us live. Make sure to check for hologram projectors also. Under the stage, above the stage, all Mm -hmm. angles. Make sure when you get there to check for the holograms. Give it the Houdini test. Make sure we're not floating. Make sure there's no fish wire. We encourage you when you come to this live (laughs) show, please come test our indestructible abs. Just punch (laughs) us right in the stomach. No warning necessary. We're bearing the lead because there will be a live show that we are going to be a part of on May 20th at 7 p.m. It is a a gathering of Los Angeles podcasts. It's going to be us, LA Not So Confidential, and Holly Weird Paranormal at the Heritage Square Museum. That's where podcasts fly in the spring. They do. We all fly to Victorian homes. You're going to watch us mate. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make bonus episodes. It's going to be held inside the old Lincoln Street Church. So we've been we've been teasing what we're going to be talking about. We're going to tell you right now what this show is going to be. We are going to be covering one of the biggest crimes Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles history. Murder at the Doheny Mansion. Bats. (laughs) Cobwebs. A couple of something. I can't sound. Cobwebs. It's the sound of me cleaning cobwebs. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be covering sort of the Doheny story. And then LA Not So Confidential is going to be covering the actual case, which you are going to want to hear from them because they are doctors and we are are, patients. I I mean this in the uh, truest sense of the word. They're professionals. Yeah. And then there's going to be a guided haunted tour of the grounds by Holly Weird Paranormal. So they're also professionals. They are professionals. We are what are we doing there? We're uh, we're holograms. You know how sometimes you fake being a janitor to get inside of a hospital, still records. We're the fake janitors. It's, yeah, we're we're gonna Watergate this show. <laughs> so if you want to get tickets to punch us in the stomach and see us Watergate a bunch of other podcasts, <laughs> break our Watergates. Go to linktree.com slash la meekly pod to get your tickets today. That's May twentieth at seven p.m. You're not gonna want to miss this. Linktree.com slash la meekly pod. We're gonna kill another person there. <laughs> Welcome to early summer, everybody. We used to, during the pandemic, would sit outside in a, a covered garage, like a bunch of, well, like two homeless people. Like recording two homeless a, people pretending, pretending to record a yeah, podcast pretending to record. as my neighbor who knows me thought was happening. And I remember thinking like, uh, this is the ideal situation. And now we're indoors again. And I wish that I was outside in the bed of my truck. I remember we were like, oh, it's going to be too hot outside. Oh, it's going to be too cold outside. One time you had to wear gloves, Greg. I wore gloves on. Yeah, the gloves. very first time we were outside, I wore yeah, it gloves because it was March of or no, no, it was like yeah, it was, it was March. It was like a year ago. No, not, not a year ago. Wait, what year is it? Do I have COVID? How many? I can't co- wait a minute. Anything. How many COVIDs have there been? What do you mean I can't go to work tomorrow? Um, <laughs> it was March 2020. It was our first episode outside, and it was so oh, cold. No, it's, it's April right now that we're recording this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was cold, it, yeah. and there were like ducks flying over, and yeah. people. Why are we reminiscing about the early days of the pandemic? Yeah. This is L.A. Meekly. Hi. Welcome to L.A. Meekly. <laughs> oh, this is Daniel Zafrin. This is Greg Gonzalez. The Daniel Zafrin. This is one of the Greg Gonzalez's. You know, it's up to you to figure out which one. I've been using chat GPT just uh-huh. to, to kind of look at stuff. Greg thinks I'm feeding the beast. Yeah, and... I think you're feeding the beast. I think that we are uh, crossing a bridge with uh, 
the AI. We're making a deal with the bridge. Yeah, we're at a crossroads right now, and you're just like, I know it's the devil, and it's going to lead down a dark path, but it makes really funny Seinfeld episodes. But it's going to teach me how to play guitar really well. Yeah. But I, I thought, like, what's going to happen if I say, if I ask it, who is Daniel Zafrin? Mm-hmm. And it said... It started laughing. It, it said, First of all, it paused. Like, <laughs> it hesitated, and then it was like... I can't give you information on on unknown individuals. Oh my God. And then I was like, who is Daniel Zafrin, the podcaster? And they were like, we don't know. If it was somebody of note, we could tell you. And I was like, well, maybe it just doesn't know who podcasters are. And then I put in one famous podcaster and that had like a whole paragraph about him. Yeah. I mean, it's good. that It means you're off the grid. And when they, <laughs> when they mix AI that's getting smarter every year with a robot dog and they tell it to ah, kill a certain ethnicity, they won't know you. Kill a certain caliber of podcaster. <laughs> but this is LA Meekly. It's a Los Angeles history podcast where we talk about Los Angeles history, different things in Los Angeles history. And also we feed the beast of AI. <laughs> we, we're really nailing the coffin shut with this thing. But hi, this is LA Meekly, LA history podcast. Every, all the information we are giving is making AI stronger and stronger so that it can, it can do Skynet in the city that Skynet happened. We will be responsible. Imagine. Well, imagine, but get the, okay. It's okay. It's going to be okay because when it's all said and done, we'll get to see Michael Bean. And that's great. Who doesn't like Michael Bean? Wait, who is he the guy who dies in everything? Kyle, the guy who comes back to save Sarah Connor in the first one. That was Mike. Wait, who's the guy from Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings? No, that's who's the Boromir. No, that's Boromir. I'm thinking, you're thinking of Boromir. Of Boromir. Uh, you're thinking of Sean Bean. Sean Bean. Sean Bean. Oh, no, I was thinking of Mr. Bean. When the T-1000 got the turkey stuck on its head. I mean, you'd think T-1000 can kill him a lot easier, but he just is so befuddled. He slips <laughs> on banana peels right when you want to put the your hand through him or whatever. And if, you're, if you're new to the show and wondering what are they talking about, we're purposely saying stupid things to throw off AI. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. now they're going to... That's how you beat robots at chess. <laughs> you, you make erratic movements until they're like, he's not even taking it seriously, and then you can go in for the kill. <laughs> they were going to Skynet us, but then they decided to move a couch and yell, pivot, 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 <laughs> which is not Mr. Bean, but friends stole from Mr. Bean. Like the turkey thing. Anyway, so before we get into the apocalypse, let's talk about some new Patreon people. Oh, exciting. That are helping prevent the apocalypse by supporting us on Patreon. That's right. By giving you money to invest (laughs) in more. I just want to play with AI another day. Uh, Who are the... We have Danielle Schmidt raised her amount. Oh, thank you, Danielle Schmidt. Thank you, Danielle Schmidt. But we lost him. But we got him back. Tony McDowell. Tony McDowell? Rejoined our Patreon. Oh, man. I can't wait to say something that he'll make him so mad. He has to come all the way back from Colorado just to be like, so why'd you say that thing? And then I just sit there shivering. He's going to be trudging through the snow from (laughs) Estes Park, like The Shining. He knocks down the Sierra Nevadas or whatever mountain range is over there. Sierra. I have no idea. Yeah. The famous Sierra Nevada beer of uh, Colorado. Don't you love it? Uh, (laughs) Uh, So yeah, thank you to Tony and Danielle. And you too can join us. Go to patreon.com slash Ellie Meekly. At $5 a month, you'll get a handwritten postcard from us every month. And on any level you join, you will get a free sticker sent to you. Just uh, thank you for joining us. We should have chat GPT. This is how it's all going. All of it. Everyone is just like, you know, it'd be really funny. And it's just learning. Like it's learning. It's learning. Just because on most of my postcards to, that I send to people, I write the nuclear codes. What's the big deal if ChatGPT does it for me? I just sit there and I explain my thought process and it repeats how it thinks back to me. And I say, yeah, you got it right. See, you're afraid of ChatGPT and you should be, but it's a lot stupider than you think it is. Right now it is. <laughs> 
of computer learns. Come now, Greg. Come on. Come on. Technology grows every year. Come on. <laughs> so before we get into technology growing every year and causing the apocalypse, let's talk about something we did in the month of April now that it's May. What did you do in the month of April? 2021 as it is right 2021, now. 2021, whatever. Yeah. I have been going to more movies with my coworkers and I've been going to the Los Feliz 3 more often for their America <laughs> Cinematheque shows because the American Cinematheque bought Los Feliz 3 and they have really great showings there. Interesting. You, you'll go to movies with them and pay a bunch of money, but you won't get AMC A-list to go to... I mean, it's in Burbank, the one I go to. It's uh-huh. kind of in between where both of us yeah. live. I don't know. I mean, like, you, uh, you don't even want to see Super Pets with me? <laughs> I'm trying to put it into words... Um, I feel like if I go with you to a movie, you're going to make me record a podcast. <laughs> so until you can promise that I won't have to work for you, It'll I would love to It'll be during the movie. <laughs> What's the big deal? We kill two birds with one chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> we killed uh, two birds with a MP3 file. Um, yeah, I went for, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very picky about movies that I go to the movies to see. So you are. I am very. You, you don't like. I mean, you like going. You like movies. You like seeing movies. You yeah. don't like the people in the theater. I can be kind of picky about that. Yeah, I, I, rightfully so. I'm right there with you. I just still go. Yeah, <laughs> it allows me to complain uh, later about it <laughs> for the podcast. For the, the, for the podcast purposes, <laughs> I went recently to see um, Matinee, which is Joe Dante's movie, uh, and it's fantastic. And Joe Dante was there, and I thought I could pick him up and run away with him. But what was the movie? I mean, you saw it early in the afternoon. But what was the movie? I'm just doing this for ChatGPT. I'm throwing ChatGPT. This is how on. humor works, ChatGPT. <laughs> yes. and then you, this is the funniest thing that anyone's ever and said. And it makes yet. the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> but not the TV show. But not the TV it show. starts a universe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also saw Kelly, saw Kelly Rodkart do a Q&A after Old Joy, which is a really great movie. So I've been going to more uh, Los Feliz 3. After- Have they changed? Because I haven't been to any American Cinematheque stuff since, I guess, before the pandemic started. Right. When they were still... I mean, they still have the arrow, but they were mostly, well, not Egyptian. mostly, but they did yeah. the Egyptian stuff. I haven't been to the Los Feliz 3 stuff It's great. Yet. I mean, the, obviously, like the, it's a completely different. I, I was worried because, you know, the arrow and the Egyptian kind of have like, uh, maybe less the arrow, but like a historic feel and you're watching yeah. old movies. So it felt like you're really participating in something like old and renowned. Now that's at Los Feliz 3, which was like a theater I used to go to in high school. It feels like it's just like no, more of a historic. Uh, um, <laughs> it feels more hangouty, which I'm glad. I, I was kind of worried mm. about how it would feel. And, uh, Has it changed clientele? Like, is it mostly younger? I mean, it always no, kind of was younger, cooler. I people, mean, I'm but... older now, so I, I don't know if they got younger or if I caught up in age or if they got. You put away childish movie yeah, theaters. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, they got up in age. Well, it's only 2021. How much older can you have gotten? <laughs> But it's been a, a lot of fun, and Vidiots is coming back this year, and I think oh, I'm going to yeah. get a membership for that because it's right down the street from my house, and I'm a renter. I rent films now, and I like to go, and there's going to be a bar there. It's going to be like a – I'm hoping to be like a regular there. Hmm. We'll see when it happens. But well, AMC A-List is only $24 a month. Uh, three theaters in Burbank, Greg. Well, you want to know what I did? Yes. Because we were both kind of struggling. We've yeah. both been busy. We Just both... with so many different <laughs> – Oh, you mean with the coming up with something? Um, Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Okay, so here's something I did – that was not in LA, but it's important to LA. Uh huh. Because we drove to the Grand Old Canyon. Oh, right. But yeah. that's not what it is. I hope not. On the way, we passed over the Colorado River. And the Colorado River is in the Grand Canyon also. But in, when you pass like needles, like the border yeah. of California and Arizona, you pass right over the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. Pretty nice. Yeah, very nice. It's a very nice looking river. And now that it's been raining a lot, it's it's been... It's a real river. Yeah, it's a real... I mean, it's a real river because we drink all of its water. 
but now you can boat on it too. <laughs> but uh, you don't have to just suckle it at its teeth. You also go for a ride. But yeah, that, the Colorado River bringing water to Los Angeles and also pretty nice place to go jet skiing. <laughs> <laughs> you don't swim. No, I don't. I would never go on the river, okay. but uh, I like driving over it on a bridge. Okay, I just want to clarify. Yeah, but it's a nice looking river. I it's like gorgeous. fishing, although I haven't gone fishing in probably 15 years, but I do like the act of fishing. Yeah. And I love eating fish. <laughs> yeah, you, growing up here, we I feel like we forget like what a real river looks like, and then we see a real river, you're like, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no. It, it, it's almost shocking like when you pass, you know, it's like the desolation of like... <laughs> outer Victorville or outer yeah. bar or whatever. And yeah. then once you pass like it's just still San Bernardino County, like all the way to the state line, it's still San Bernardino Is County. Really? Yeah. It was kind of shocking, but like, it's like a lush paradise. It's, it's really nice that I guess a bunch of hillbillies go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they fly at the beginning of spring. <laughs> to like River. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as the swallows return to Capistrano, <laughs> The Kid Rock fans return to Lake Havasu. <laughs> American flags in tow. <laughs> in tow head. <laughs> so, okay, that's enough talking about what we did in April. Let, we're on to May. Yes. Mother may we. Yes, we may. Uh, Chat GBT, take note of that. So, may the Star Trek be with you. Let, so let's, let's explain what this episode is going to be. Okay. Because... I originally was thinking like housing, like famous housing areas, sure. but you had another thing in mind that went hand in hand with the place I had in mind. Yeah, I, I originally, we were going to do a housing episode. I wanted to do something on a housing situation I'd heard about with the Florentine Gardens where girls would stay and one of the girls was Elizabeth Short. And it sounded oh. a lot seedier than I thought, but I looked into it and there's maybe like a paragraph and there's like n- nothing there. So I was kind of scrambling at that point to find another thing. And then you told me you were doing your subject and your subject all legendary. From, uh, yeah, legendary. As we're going to probably frame this episode as old Hollywood stomping grounds. Your place always reminds me of the place that I picked and I thought, well, there, there's the link right there. Yeah. So I just decided to... Old Hollywood stomping grounds. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. I'm making note of that because that is gold. That's Oh, yeah. It's like a computer wrote that. An ever-learning computer wrote that. That's so good. <laughs> Some of the places where the, the rich and famous, all the names you know and love went to do some of the most heinous things that anybody could imagine. You are prude. But also, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> mine less so, but I think that there was like an implied grossness to it, but we'll have to, I'll, I'll explain it to you and then you could tell me if I'm just making things up or not. If you are the prude. <laughs> Greg, you will start us out with our first debauched old stomping ground of Los Angeles. Mine's a little <laughs> more romanticized, but sure. I'm going to be talking about a little sp- Space that existed in Hollywood for love three years, the Love Shack. It's called the Hollywood Canteen. Some people have, have heard of it, very familiar with it. Some people like you are completely ignorant I about never. the city you're living and you don't really care about anything but yourself. Um, so I'm going to be talking about the Hollywood Canteen. After the onset of World War II, millions of healthy Americans, both men and women, enlisted to fight to end fascism in Europe crush the Nazis, and steal as much artifacts from German castles as possible. We earned it. <laughs> I had to come all the way to Germany. I'm allowed to steal this painting. <laughs> I went all the way to fight the Nazis in Germany, and all I got was this Rembrandt. <laughs> <laughs> On our home front, the good Americans had to find a way to help while staying put. Millions of women took factory jobs. Many of people of color who were otherwise banned from employment due to homegrown racism got jobs in the war machine. Opportunities were presenting themselves, and the world was in the act of changing. Many movie stars enlisted to fight in Europe, and those who were either too cowardly or too sick to fight had to find unique ways to help out. 
Three months after the attack Pearl Harbor and America entering World War II, a New York volunteer group called the American Theater Wing decided they wanted to help the war effort from home, utilizing what they had to offer. This was in New York. Taking a space just off Broadway in the basement of the 44th Street Theater, the theater owner donated the space to use, and several stage designers, local merchants, caterers, and restaurant owners all donated what they could, including volunteers, to work for them for this endeavor. What they created was the Stage Door Canteen, where servicemen were invited to the this like nightclub soup kitchen mix, where <laughs> around 1,700 volunteers from New York theater, the theater industry, would party and dance with servicemen as well as serve them. Servicemen and also service servicing men. men. Um, <laughs> well. We'll save that for my place. <laughs> <laughs> it was their way of thanking the brave men who were out fighting the Nazis. This would be the model for the Hollywood canteen, and it was thanks to two famous movie stars, John Garfield, who <laughs> some know from, I know him from Postman Always Rings Twice, and Betty Davis, who I don't even need to introduce, like <laughs> Betty Davis. John Garfield grew up in the slums of the Lower East Side, and he was the son of Jewish immigrants. He found his voice on the New York stage as an early example of like what Brando and James Dean, like a working class brooding but like sensitive actor like he was that kind of type but not like as refined as the other two were you call marlon brando sensitive i i think he was anguished so like the the like the sensitivity that comes out is anger <laughs> like how dare you say that about me like that kind of is certainly sensitive to oranges <laughs> his body was sensitive to calories <laughs> very funny very funny um, <laughs> take note chat gbt <laughs> so john garfield came out west to make money in hollywood which he didn't respect he didn't like making movies he, he was like a theater guy he also didn't like mondays right, so from what i hear from what i hear i strictly i want you to know that every time i wrote his name i put john garfield because i didn't want what just happened to happen someone's being a real odie <laughs> you're not lasagna um <laughs> I don't like you. You're not lasagna. So he, he came out West to be in movies, which he didn't have absolutely no respect for movies, but that changed when he was nominated for an Oscar in 1938 for the movie Four Daughters. So that meant... So now he loves movies. So now he loves movies and he's here to stay. John Garfield, son of Jewish immigrants, was itching to fight the Nazis in World War II. And when America entered the war, he was set to enlist and snuff out Hitler himself. The Personally. Yeah, personally snuff out Hitler. He had a knife that had Hitler's name. And it confused a lot of people, but... You know, to Garfield from Hitler. What is this knife name? <laughs> no, it's from from Garfield to Hitler. <laughs> That's what he was mailing Odie to. <laughs> Odie had a cyanide pill in his mouth. When you pet his fur, it transfers over <laughs> to your hand, and then you rub it in your eyes, and you die. <laughs> I was trying to make a joke about the Hitler killing his two dogs, but and one of them being Odie, but my brain's lagging right now and making that connection. Uh, someone will make it yeah, in someone, their own head. It'll make the listener feel smart. Someone much funnier than us, which is most people. The problem with him wanting to join World War II, John Garfield, was that he was 4F. He was unfit for military service because as a child, he got hit with rheumatic fever and was left as an adult with a weak heart. That didn't deter his ambition to do something to help the U.S. win the war, though. The message that the government was giving Hollywood at the time was do what you can with the voice that you have, mostly meaning like help us raise money for war bonds, you know, help sell American propaganda on the big screen, make sure that every movie is just like, we got to get together, boys, like <laughs> the land of the free democracy. Like that was <laughs> unless you're Humphrey Bogart. Then you don't have to do that till the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the Bob Hopes and Marilyn Monroe's would hit the USO tours for the troops and everything. <laughs> the two bombshells. The two. <laughs> All this was, this is what the government was telling Hollywood to do. This is your mission. Yeah. John Garfield also did USO tours, but he thought there was more he could be doing. And he became aware of the, the stage door canteen in New York. That was his answer. Let's do that, but in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. In May of 1942, on the Warner Brothers lot, 
John Garfield had lunch with Betty Davis while she was filming a movie called Voyager. At this lunch in the green room of the studio commissary, John Garfield was oh, may, eating may lasagna. The, may the Star Trek be with you. Yeah. <laughs> we were both going for two different two things. Different, absolutely two different things. <laughs> John Garfield would pitch the idea of a West Coast stage door canteen. Betty Davis loved this idea and took the role of the new canteen's chairman like right away. And once she was activated, she went full speed into manifesting the Hollywood canteen. John Garfield and Betty Davis spent their weekends, days off, and quiet moments of the 18-hour workdays, including, you know, this all included working out the details, pitching the idea to all the guilds, the unions, the craft organizations, Hollywood. You know, it, it just like working out every last detail they could to make this happen as fast as possible. So this, just to sum up, let's put all the Garfield and Star Trek yeah. aside. So this was a place where Hollywood people would help feed troops or feed and entertain them okay so it was like a it was a, a, like a local uso like yeah like a localized uso thing is probably the best way to think about it because i was thinking this whole time it's a nightclub but also a soup kitchen <laughs> but the thing about it is like you're being but it's for veterans or is it for it's for active servicemen i think also soon to be veterans well it's soon to be veterans because it's 1942 so we right. we haven't even nobody who jumped right into the war has done a full duty I'll get to that later, but you can only get in if you were a serviceman. So, like, you and I could never go. Or, like... <laughs> what if you've actively avoided conflict your whole life? <laughs> what if you shot yourself in the foot to make sure that you didn't go to Germany? Um, what, what what about me? What if you've got, like, like a to-go bag buried just across the Canadian border? <laughs> Are you allowed in? What if I'm dying from terminal cowardice? <laughs> can I go in? We'll get into the logistics, but basically that's what it was, was like a localized USO tour okay. in a place that you can go eight days. sorry, seven <laughs> days a week. <laughs> well, if you're in the Beatles, you get to go eight days a week. I mean, a uh, soldier in World War II, it really is eight days a week. So they had to pitch this idea to all the unions, basically saying, give us everything you have. We can't yeah. pay you. This is for the war. <laughs> They've got masks pulled up over their noses. <laughs> it's for the war. Hand it over. Hand it over. But luckily, most of them were very enthusiastic about giving what they could to make this thing happen. In all they, they Exactly. <laughs> they enlisted 46 guilds and unions to sponsor the canteen. The pair rounded up several people and created a board of directors and elected officials and representatives. One of the biggest contributors to the Hollywood canteen was Jules Stein, the founder and head of the Music Corporation of America, the MC Betty convinced him to become the organizer and financial advisor and ultimately business manager of the canteen. His participation was crucial to getting the canteen off the ground. Basically, Betty Davis said, like, if it wasn't for him, this wouldn't have happened. He had, like, all the right connections to make this thing go. Let's not forget Garfield. I mean, he doesn't like most things and he likes this. This is Garfield propaganda, by the way. Um, <laughs> next on the agenda was finding a location. Their search was over when they found a beat up former barn style building just off of Sunset on Coenga, 1451 Coenga Boulevard. Not the old Sunset Amoeba, the building right behind it. South of it? South of it, I yeah. there isn't anything, unless you're talking about the uh, Cinerama Dome. No, it's not the Cinerama Dome. It's not the Jack in a Box. It's not like Netflix headquarters. Like, right. if you're coming out the back door, it's like literally- Like kind of across where like that fire department kind of yeah museum in that or? direction yeah so okay. behind amoeba there was parking underneath and there was like a like a random yeah, parking yeah. lot behind it i think it was around there if okay. if the numbers didn't change in the last 80 years <laughs> and why would they why would numbers change on a hollywood street i mean sure in my story the numbers change but why would they in your story change no numbers stay put forever that's why it's I V V I X I I. Yeah. So if if it's still the same when I look put the address into Google, it's the building immediately behind Amoeba. 
Betty Davis saw it and said, it's one step below an eyesore. The spot used to be several different... Thanks, Betty. Thanks uh, for, <laughs> for all input. of these things, all these people donating stuff. This is what you have yeah. to say. Usually this thing's rolling around the toilet. Um, <laughs> the spot used to be several different nightclubs, the last of which was called the Red Bard, which is kind of like, why well, it was barn-ish. Mm. And they sort of kept that aesthetic. It's kind of, it had been empty for five years when John Garfield and Betty Davis found it. For the duration of the canteen's existence, the two paid $100 a month to lease it. A spot in the heart of Hollywood. This was in August, and they planned on opening in October of 1942, which gave Garfield, which gave John Garfield <laughs> and the art director Alfred Yabara one month to get the space in ship shape. Fourteen of the guild donated their time, labor, and materials to the creation of the Hollywood Canteen. This was truly a team effort. This was like I keep thinking, like is it like propaganda videos in World War II, where it's like everyone's doing their part to help, you know, support the boys. Yeah, even the little boy, even little Timmy, <laughs> even Betty Davis. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly that. And even the Hollywood stars are doing their own thing. And then this was just building the Betty Hollywood. Davis is like scrubbing a toilet. <laughs> this place looks a lot better on paper. Whatever Betty Davis sounds exactly like, like that. Um, <laughs> if you watch Watcher in the Woods at her and when she's like seventy five, that's exactly what she sounds like. <laughs> so they had volunteer plumbers, electricians, carpenters, painters, laborers, prop mid cartoonists, decorators. The Screen Cartoonist Guild painted several murals on the walls inside the canteen, fitting with the cowboy western theme of the place. Hmm. Oh, and the lettering outside was like rope lettering, which I love. Oh, rope fun. lettering, yeah. The guilds donated lumber, barrels of nails, gallons of paint, miles of electrical wire, hundreds of yards of concrete. All food, drink, and cigarettes were donations from different Southern California food distributors, and they would need to donate a lot. It's estimated that each month it was open, the soldiers took in 4,000 loaves of bread, 400 pounds of butter, 1,500 pounds of coffee, 50,000 half pints of milk, 30,000 gallons of punch, 1,000 pounds of cheese, 2,500 pounds of assorted meats, 20,000 oranges, 100,000 pieces of cake, and more than 150,000 sandwiches and hot dogs. And that was just Marlon Brando's <laughs> All in one day. This is how we won the war, guys. With 300 <laughs> gallons of ice cream. This is how we beat them. Yeah, this is just Orson Welles' locked refrigerator. <laughs> and then that, that that big delivery got diverted and went <laughs> straight, straight to Xanadu. <laughs> Everyone leaves that part out of Citizen Kane, but aside from the Hollywood angle of the canteen, another interesting premise, like we were talking about earlier, of the Hollywood canteen was that it was not open to civilians and star seekers. This place would be used exclusively by enlisted servicemen of the U.S. and allied nations. A serviceman's uniform would be his ticket. No military officers would be permitted either. Like if you are like a higher rank than like a soldier, you couldn't get in. Yeah, go to Musso and Frank. Exactly. It seems like uh, I could just steal some valor and put on a military yeah. uniform and walk, walk with right a in. limp. Yeah, yeah, and the scar and the things I've seen. <laughs> the things I've seen. The only thing that can heal my wounds: four thousand pounds of butter. And Charlie Chaplin's got to bring it to me. <laughs> Betty Davis needs to clean the toilet again before I use it. There was something called an angel's table which sat four people. Eventually, they added another table, so eight. And the idea was that for $25, a civilian could be a fly in the wall. Oh, that's weird. To enjoy the food and beverage, but they would not be allowed to dance or mingle with stars. Oh, They would okay. just like sit in the periphery of the room and enjoy it from afar, but they were not allowed to participate in anything okay. that a serviceman could participate what in. What I thought you were saying was that you could pay... I guess, period, if you were a serviceman and you could sit at a table with like Clark Gable and, oh. and all, like there was like the hangout table for oh, the celebrities right. and they kept like one spot open and you could pay to sit there. I guess I should have introed this better. No celebrities went there. 
No, it was full of celebrities at all times, and they were doing everything. They were sweeping up. They were bussing tables. They were serving oh, sandwiches. So they, they were entertaining, but they were also like, you would like do a show, then like, okay, I got to clean up all the sandwiches on this table. So Betty Davis really was yeah. cleaning the toilets. Yeah. I don't know if she was cleaning toilets. She ran the no, 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 no. No, no, You said you, that she cleaned <laughs> toilets, and she didn't even use the scrub. Bare hands. You said that. <laughs> hands tied behind her back. She used her face, Greg. <laughs> And we're trying to tell her, like, you can put gloves on. And she's like, I breathe bleach. It's okay. I'm into this. Yeah. Yeah. The stars would volunteer there. That's so weird. I I wish that I brought photo evidence because some of those photos, that's, I mean, those are really famous photos of Hollywood during the war. It's pictures like Loretta Young hanging out with a bunch of illicit men signing autographs. And behind her is Buster Keaton serving sandwiches. (laughs) Like it's, it's an anomaly. I bet it was hilarious. Very stone faced the whole time. No expression. (laughs) With his thumb in the soup. A big oven's about to fall on him, but he falls just in the right space. Right between the burners. Yeah, right between the burners and he's safe. And he kind of just keeps going business as usual. (laughs) The Angel's Table was sold out weeks in advance. Mm. The Angel's Table would bring in $6,000 a month. How? So wait, so even at the Angel's Table, like Buster Keaton would come give you your soup with his thumb in it? I don't know if they were, I mean, maybe. What am I paying $25 for? To be in the room to watch it from afar. Not enough. Not enough. How much extra do I have to pay to have um, Lon Chaney bring me a pastrami sandwich? I have to go to Louis B. Mayer and he has to, I have to pay him to offer me a contract so I could be on yeah, the yeah, catalog yeah. so I can go to the... I guess that maybe that's what they were preventing of like, oh, people are going to pay this so that, yeah, they can... Here's your tip, uh, Louis B. Mayer, and it's your, your, pilot for, yeah. <laughs> uh, your pilot for Gone with the Wind. It works as a show. (laughs) Once the servicemen were inside the space, everything would be free to them, including there was no door charge. Food beverages were free. Like the show was free. Once they came in, everything to them was free. Mm. The Hollywood canteen was also dry. No alcohol would be served. Mm. Although there's stories about people sticking alcohol in, obviously, because all of these people were alcoholics. Maybe not Ginger Rogers, but I think everybody else was an alcoholic. (laughs) So I'm sure stuff was snuck in. But for the most part, it was pretty dry. No alcohol was served for sure to okay. servicemen. Also, you know, there's a lot of hostesses, which are more famous stars that you might recognize from movies. And then there were junior hostesses. And some <laughs> of the, I'll get into this a little bit later, but they were like studio staff. Like a receptionist? Yeah, like receptionists and people who worked on the lot. You would be able, I mean, I, I say be able, I'm sure the <laughs> studio would force you to volunteer your hours to the Hollywood canteen. Right. <laughs> Either one of them, the hostesses and the junior hostesses, you were not permitted to see any servicemen after their shift. No exchanging numbers. If you had a dance and good rapport with Ginger Rogers, that was it. If you wanted to keep up with her, you had to go through her agent or studio. Oh, these were rules for the servicemen. It was rules for the volunteers, but it was reflecting... Wait, so what? But why would the volunteers who are working there be dancing with Ginger Rogers? No, 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 no. Sorry. Is Fred Astaire volunteer there? Yeah, he volunteers (laughs) there. Yeah. No, I'm saying if you're a soldier and you dance with Ginger Rogers and you ask for her number, she wasn't allowed to give it to you, even if she had a good time and was like, oh, oh, you're a great soldier and you're very handsome. I'm not allowed to do that. Those are rules for me. Yeah. Here's my agent. It's also protecting me. (laughs) Yeah. No. I mean, Black Dahlia was around the corner. Yeah. Oh. Daniel. (laughs) No hanky-panky at all, as far as the rules go. And servicemen were only permitted to dance one dance per starlet. If they caught, let's say another, uh, Ginger Rogers dancing two- (laughs) Let's just pick a a different, uh, a random celebrity. Uh, Which one dances a lot? Ginger Rogers. (laughs) She wasn't allowed to dance with the same soldier twice. You had to like shuffle through them to make sure that you were 
No hanky-panky. Yeah. These rules were pretty stiff, but that was put in place to make sure that everyone stayed safe. The Hollywood Canteen ran from 7 p.m. to midnight to allow regular Joe Schmo volunteer to work their regular 9-to-5 job and then jump into volunteering alongside Rita Hayworth. Weekends at <laughs> or ran- Ginger Rogers. Or Ginger, let's say, I don't know, pick one at random, Ginger Rogers. Weekends ran from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. So as for the stars... Three days after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, in a day that would live in references, the Screen Actors Guild created the Hollywood Victory Committee for the purpose of providing a way actors could contribute to the war effort through raising money for war bronze and performing for the troop. What I'm saying is the committee was formed to like kind of filter and be the go-between between the stars and the government. Okay. So if you were Bob Hope and you wanted to perform for the troops and you didn't have a contact in the government, you went to the Hollywood Victory Committee, or they came to you either way, and that's how you'd be able to help the war effort. Okay. If you were, let's say, I don't know, Bob Hope. <laughs> or Ginger Rogers. Or, I don't know, random G- Ginger Rogers. <laughs> um, through the committee, uh, SAG would grant permission to movie stars to make appearances and entertain without having to deal with the established union rules. Another thing to worry about, about compensation and such. It was through the <laughs> Unions. Hall- oh, God, can you believe it? Trying to protect us and make sure I don't work 19 hours a day. <laughs> Stupid Boris Karloff. <laughs> Only eight hours a day and then five hours serving sandwiches to troops. Only acting eight I'm in makeup for 16 hours any given day. It's not work if you're sitting down. <laughs> She's working. I'm sitting here. It's 119 degrees. In this. <laughs> it was through the Hollywood Victory Committee that Betty Davis would access some of Hollywood's biggest stars. Some did it as favors. Others were nudged, forced to do it by the studio. Now some stars would be able to dance and chat with servicemen. Someone signed autographs, but they were all expected to work. Like you all had to like, you, you couldn't just show up and like, I'm just going to sign autographs today. Like you could sign autographs in between doing your yeah, job chopping here. lettuce. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Serving coffee, making coffee. Ginger Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you're wrapping Ginger Rogers. <laughs> but, so like I was saying, like you would stir her every three minutes or else she starts dancing compulsively. <laughs> so yeah, you would see Buster Keaton busting tables. Shirley Temple well, was mean, 14 and busting Re- tables. He'd call it bustering tables. <laughs> Rita Hayworth, Shirley Temple were passing out sandwiches. Uh, you'd see oh. like, like Charles Lawton. That's child labor. Yeah, it starts now at 14. It doesn't start when she's a little kid. <laughs> it's child labor now that she has to wipe down a table. <laughs> what about Charles Lawton? Oh, like he would just be like wiping down a table, getting it ready for someone to sit down next. I've got a Charles Lawton story for you also. I have a better Charles Lawton in here. Uh, Not better than yours, better than this. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> also, like the wives of a lot of celebrities were doing their part. Jules Stein's wife, Doris Stein, organized the hostesses and the schedules. Mary Ford, who was the wife of John Ford, also supervised the volunteers as well. I was thinking this was somehow related to Mary Pickford. And I was like, is this her sister? Pickford. Pickford. (laughs) So almost everything was set for grand opening, October 3rd, 1942. Performers were being lined up with the MC of the night being comedian Eddie Cantor. Uh Uh-oh. Mr. Making Whoopi himself. (laughs) Isn't that his big song? Making Whoopi? I have no idea. Yeah. I guess Eddie can. Um, (laughs) Don't. Door. Um, <laughs> they expected an overflow of servicemen, so they rented out a shell gas station next to the space and used it as a dance pavilion. Just like like to, an annex of dancing? Yeah, like, an an, like a dance annex. But how could Ginger Rogers be in two places at once? That's what Fred's for. <laughs> He's quite ugly. Um, yeah, he is. Anyways, a great dancer, though. But beautiful feet. Beautiful feet, but don't look up. Um, <laughs> the, movie, the movie Don't Look Up. It's about Fred Rogers' feet. Fred Rogers. Fred Rogers. Did I say Fred Rogers? You, you sure did say Mr. Rogers. You make me sick. Nobody could dance like Fred Rogers. <laughs> That's why he changed shoes when he got home. <laughs> he just got back from the Hollywood canteen. And boy, are my cardigans tired. <laughs> boy, is my weird room full of puppets tired. A final aspect for opening night came from Jules Stein when he pitched an idea to bring in some more money. 
they would erect bleachers that lined opposite walls of the canteen and sell $50 tickets to movie stars, studio execs, community leaders, and higher-ranking military officers. They would be the audience for opening night, and the servicemen, volunteers, and movie stars would be the show. So, oh, so like a flip the, flip yeah, the script night. Flip, yeah, exactly. And is Louis B. Mayer watching a bunch of servicemen being like, how do I, can I pick their pockets? How do I, what can I do to get more money from these people? Is that a girl talking to a boy? That makes me sick to my stomach. Are they married? Uh, he's a big prude. Wait, so this was like a talent show that they put on? No, or? no, no. It was just, they, they would just sit and watch the canteen be the canteen. Oh, wait, what? Well, oh. sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> There was a show, like every night there'd be like a, a, a variety show of uh-huh. some sorts that would always sort of change. They would sit on the bleachers, the host studio execs, the high-ranking military officers, have you, the people that couldn't get in otherwise because you're not a star. You just like run the studio. You could sit on the side for $50 and just watch the canteen be the canteen, meaning movie stars dancing with soldiers, signing autographs, but also you could watch the show. But why would they care? They really wouldn't. Uh, I imagine the high-ranking officers would be like... I- well, you may be the high-ranking, but like, why would the why would Louis B. Meyer be like, you know, I'll, I could just make them all recreate this for me in my office tomorrow. Like, what is he so desperate to get in there for? I have no idea other than showing face. I thought you were going to say that, like, there was a night that they would do where, like, the celebrities... Oh, got to sit back and all of the regular people oh, serve yeah. them food. No, yeah. Irving Thalberg is serving sandwiches. <laughs> no, no, no. It would be the opposite. Like, it would just be a restaurant. Like, celebrities oh. would come in and all of the regular people would work there. <laughs> I think I just invented a restaurant. A restaurant, like a regular restaurant. You invented a restaurant in Brentwood. <laughs> OJ Simpson. Um, all of the stars. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, they were just like invited to watch opening night and enjoy the show and see what all this was about and okay. and decide whether I wanted to keep you part of MGM or not because you really were not selling me as someone who hands out sandwiches yesterday, Shirley Temple. You lost the magic, kid. You didn't really sell them on the dessert. <laughs> that show was really great where Mickey Rooney just chased women around the room. That was a really good show. What are you talking about? What? <laughs> opening night would consist of two big name bands, three floor shows, dancing with Hollywood stars, and then food and snacks as well. Ginger Rogers. Ginger Rogers. Opening night, 9 p.m. Places jam-packed. The night opened with a little ha-ha from Eddie Cantor. Betty Davis gave an opening speech thanking John Garfield for coming to her and with the idea. The color guard with different branches of the armed forces came up, presented Davis with the different flags from different military arms of the military, (laughs) Air Force. They gave her the flags? Yeah, they folded it up like she was a a war widow. No, they just handed her like little flags being like, thank you for doing this for us. I thought... (laughs) I was thinking uh, the folding up thing would be funny too, but I was thinking they brought out like at the Olympics, like the giant giant flag. She was like, "Uh, another one. No help. Carry it to your car. No help. Um, (laughs) Abbott and Costello were there. They did who's on first for the troops. (laughs) It turns out you never really find out who's on first. Rudy Valley's Coast Guard band played for the servicemen. Entertainers included Eleanor Powell, who danced until she almost died. (laughs) Dinah Shore and Betty Hutton sang. 4,000 servicemen showed up on opening night. 4,000? How can that many fit in there? Rotating. Oh, okay. It just rotated for like what the five hours it's open or whatever. <laughs> battalions of yeah, but battalions of soldiers, yeah. And they the forward march and then just go to the co- get coffee retreat. <laughs> That's when it was time to leave. Here's a list of the stars opening night on duty, serving as hosts or hostesses: okay. Ann Baxter, Joan Bennett, Jack Benny, Charles Boyer, Gary Cooper, Joan Crawford, Bing Crosby. Wow. Betty Davis was there. Marlena Dietrich, Olivia de Havilland, Irene Dunn, Judy Garland, Cary Grant, Rita Hayworth, Veronica Lake, Hedy Lamar, Fred McMurray, Edward G. Robinson, <laughs> Mickey Rooney, Jane Russell, 
Anne Sheridan, Jean Tierney, Spencer Tracy, Lana Turner, Loretta Young were among the many, many volunteers that night on opening night. Ridiculous. Star studded. <laughs> if I threw a dart and hit any one of those, I would have been so excited. And all of them just screaming at each other in the kitchen oh, yeah. like the bear. <laughs> corner, corner. This is cilantro. I needed basil. Who turned off the heat on my. <laughs> Who messed up my creme brulee? Edward G. Robinson crying over like a destroyed cake. <laughs> I almost had it. I almost had it. I think we know who put animal crackers in the soup. Oh, wait, no. That's not. No, she wasn't there. She that's wasn't. not Judy Garland. <laughs> that was almost funny, but ChatGPT will correct that. Yeah, it'll, it'll correct it in post. Our new editor, ChatGPT. <laughs> ChatGPT. After all the fun and enthusiasm with opening night was over, now they had to do it every night for the duration of the war, which they didn't know how long it would go for. <laughs> Every night they had to prepare an estimated 25. So is this like another 10 day war? <laughs> Where are we on the bomb? Crap. Okay. Every night they had to prepare for an estimated 2,500 soldiers. There were between 150 to 200 hostesses each night. Hostesses could be famous movie stars or they could be lower tier actresses, studio secretaries, wardrobe ladies, anything below the line entertainment workers. You would be asked to do this or you could volunteer. I, I bet there was a lot of disappointment of the troops eating there of like, I hope I get, oh, look, Cary Grant's delivering at the next table. Oh, oh. I have Irving Thalberg's personal secretary. Yeah, I do feel bad for her, but. Uh, <laughs> All sympathy to Irving Thalberg. Oh, I got secretary. Chico marks. <laughs> uh, first off, how dare you? <laughs> he can play piano like no other. <laughs> if you order from Harpo, he'll never come back. He brought a tuba back, and I can't. There's no receipt here. I know I'm not paying for it. I mean, but. I know I ordered the seltzer. He didn't have to squirt it in my face. <laughs> I have a cup. Groucho got cigarette ash over everything, and he walked off with my day. Tried to tell me it was pepper, <laughs> and I'm the idiot for noticing. Senior hostesses would greet servicemen, show them to their seats, serve them uh, at the snack bar. Junior hostesses would wear these really cool, like, red armbands with, like, HC embroidered on them. Sounds like the people they were fighting, but okay. Okay. Armbands <laughs> are, you're walking on a thin line, guys. That's Hugo Boss, too. Um, <laughs> That's what the HC stands for. Hugo. Uh, Hugo Boss. boss. Um, Hugo Kill Boss. <laughs> That's what they were serving. There was some gray area, of course, between senior and junior hostesses, and a distinction between them would often blur. As stated before, no hostess of any level was allowed to see a serviceman they met at the canteen. They could not leave the canteen premises with a soldier. They could not give out phone numbers. Some actresses like Jean Porter and Donna Reed had pre-printed cards with studio addresses on them. Yeah, that's what I was thinking that they should do. Yeah, so they. I, uh, I'm so sorry, but yeah, here's my here. studio card just to deal with that. <laughs> here's my trading card. Yeah. I got three Betty Davises. <laughs> Truly... An honor system sort of thing. Like, we can't check up on you. Like, right. if you if a soldier sneaks you his number, like, he's trying to get out of Jonestown, like, we don't know. We don't, like, this isn't a sweatshop. We can't pat your pockets <laughs> on the way out. Yeah. They didn't pat down, let's just say, Ginger Rogers Ginger, on the uh, way out. Pick one at random, Ginger Rogers. There were some stories about crossing. Check her phone. Open your, spit it out. What do you have in your mouth? Is that a phone? It's like, it's like really long because the phone number is like <laughs> Olympia, like one five 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 nine. There are. Ticker tape. <laughs> she hasn't stopped. Is this a magic trick? There's some stories about crossing the line, obviously. A hostess named Meg Nisbet, who was a messenger at RKO, enjoyed a second date with a soldier named Woody Cole, and the two carried off a relationship beyond the bounds of the canteen. Mm -mm. They were soon married, and not long after that, Woody was sent to war and died. <laughs> 
This was used as a cautionary tale. Oh my God. I was going to say jokingly, that's what happens. But for them to actually say that's what happens. Is you fair. want a Woody to happen to you? And they all got quiet because they probably made that girl work. So another cautionary tale is incredibly grim. And it's a story I've wanted to cover for a long time. And it's one of the women that were murdered around the same time as Elizabeth Short that sort of gets lumped in with her. I don't know. I've, I've We put it on a list a while ago that Elizabeth Short might not have been. The Black Dolly was not, maybe not the only person mutilated by this person there were several women around the time was getting mutilated and left in public this one wasn't left in public but it was a pretty bad murder her name was georgette baradorf is a bubbly little oil heiress who volunteered at the canteen and she was kind of slyly getting dates you know some from the canteen some not from the canteen but she had been seen with a soldier we're not no one's sure if that was a canteen soldier or not but she was found dead in her bathtub a really grisly crime scene and I never found the killer and of course this happens canteen or not but this was another cautionary tale this is another <laughs> thing of like don't give your number to somebody this might end badly for you so is there a possibility the black dahlia killer was a military man is this what you're telling me i mean we don't know a single thing about the person that killed her. Uh, I think we should shut down the military because of this. I think we should end World War II ourselves. I think we should let World War II keep going just to make let sure. It burn itself out. It'll be gone by Easter. <laughs> it's still 2021, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know how history works. So for three years during the war, the Hollywood Canteen existed as a special little bubble for stars to co-mingle with regular people and serve them. Regular people being people that were serving in the military. Like you can be like a guy who grew up in like... La Habra and go serve in the military and you're just like a regular guy but now you're hanging out with the, the ginger rogers of parts of los angeles exactly yeah some people call it an exploitative photo op and it kind of was at times but this photo op was a real place that servicemen could enter and enjoy themselves you must remember this that an episode on this and she brought up a point no of free what, plugs. Uh, maybe the best podcast around next to criminal she was saying like if this was a photo op or exploitive the soldiers sure didn't mind it like we're getting free food and we get a dance at a nightclub and all the stars in the movies are here right now. <laughs> like it's, I'm exploit me. It's fine. Like I was saying, like photo ops are known for being faked and only existing for the length of the photo. But you know, Joan Crawford, Buster Keaton, Rita Hayworth, Betty Davis would be in a room serving soup, handing out sandwiches, <laughs> dancing, chatting one night, in 1944, Henry Wallace, who was the vice president at the time, came to the Hollywood Canteen and helped in the kitchen. There's photos of Spencer Tracy wearing an apron, signing autographs while serving food. Marlena Dietrich and Rita Hayworth were serving coffee. Bill Bojangas Robinson would do a big <laughs> dance number with soldiers sitting in a circle around him. Actress Kay Francis drove to a naval hospital 50 miles south of LA and picked up a bunch of wounded soldiers herself just to bring them to the canteen to have a good time. What? Some of them went all the way to France and <laughs> carried soldiers off of the battlefield just to get them to the Hollywood canteen. We flew a plane into the foxholes in France and pulled somebody out because you won't believe it. Charlie Chaplin's here. Charles Loughton had a soldier in his mouth swimming across the Atlantic Ocean just to get to the Hollywood It was canteen. an inside joke, but boy, was it a good scene. <laughs> At the one-year anniversary of the canteen, Meekly Mayor Mary Pickford gave a speech. Orson Welles was known to broadcast live on the radio from the canteen mm. stage. The most frequent guest of the canteen was, of course, Mr. USO himself, Bob Hope, would often go and do like a little show for people. And because the canteen was less than a mile from NBC, where NBC was at the time on Sunset and Vine, Eddie Cantor or Red Skeleton would just hop on over and do their show there live, or just like if they're looking for do it, do it with an audience, they would just do it there for the canteen. They were right down the street one night. Charles Lawton was spotted volunteering at the canteen and a band leader spotted him and asked him to get up on stage. <laughs> Lawton said, no, thanks. I can't sing or tell jokes. I wouldn't know what to do. And the soldier said from the audience shouted, give us the Gettysburg address. <laughs> and that 
he could do. What? So he got up in front of everybody and delivered a Gettysburg address in front of a room full of soldiers and it ended with thunderous applause. What? Like people were crying at the well, end of this. Well, this was the free bird of the day. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Before Leonard Skinner came, it was just Gettysburg Address on tape. What a weird request. And also that he had it that memorized. That he knew it. And, and Charles Lawton, of all people, did it. That's great. <laughs> Fantastic. You might not get it, but your grandparents <laughs> yeah, are going to love yeah, it. <laughs> your grandparents are going to love it. Beyond being a place where servicemen could dance with Loretta Young, it was a premier nightclub. Because it was soldiers Ginger only, Rogers. it made the allure of serving in the military even more romantic. Like <laughs> I feel like m- most wars... There's a certain, well, up to a certain point, probably going to serve in war had like, like a valor thing to it. That's what a lot of people got duped into fighting in World War One because like, I'm going to come back a hero. And then you came back and you only had like one limb left. <laughs> I think World War Two had that too. And I think this, now that this was a thing, it added another romantic element of like, I'll go and fight and crush fascism and I'll come and dance with Rita Hayworth Ginger when I'm done. Rogers will fall in love with me. Any, any one of them. Let's just say, I don't know, Ginger Rogers <laughs> fall in love with me. Vivacious Lady. Perfect movie. Ginger Rogers, so funny. The Hollywood Canteen, like I'm trying to say about nightclubs, it rivaled Ciro's, the Macombo, Coconut Grove. Like it was like a nightclub, like a big deal nightclub, but it wasn't like the other ones in that like, oh, the richest and most famous people are paying top dollar to be there. Like, no, you you have to work. Yeah, it was Bizarro World. You had to go there. If you were a rich and famous star, you had to go work there and servicemen would be having a good time. And people wanted to go there. And people wanted to go. (laughs) Exactly. There were no mob hits happening here. One of the biggest deals to me is that Betty Davis and John Garfield fought hard to keep the Hollywood canteen, and this is a big deal, integrated. Mm. This in the early 40s when very little white spaces allowed people of color to enter unquestioned. How did they keep it integrated? Can't keep it integrated, (laughs) but how did they do that when the military was... They were not. Yeah, they were. The military? Weren't they? Oh, no, they weren't. The Tuskegee Airmen. You're absolutely right. They weren't. They pulled it off there. I I guess they were. I I guess you can still hang out. You just can't fight together. I don't know. Yeah, I don't don't know know how how the military military works. works. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, they they just fought for it with the unions and everybody running the committees and everything. Say, no, this is for all soldiers, despite what color they are. So it was integrated. It was said that any race related brawls, like if like. (laughs) Let's say a They're bunch of is, a bunch of white soldiers don't like that. Like I don't. Know, let's say black people are in the same space as them, and they want to have a fight about it. If that's any race related brawls would happen between soldiers, the band was instructed to immediately start playing the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> and through the three years that it was also open, the Leonard's the uh, Freebird of its day. Yeah, the seventeen seventy six Freebird was Star Spangled <laughs> Banner, and then a century later, it became another one. <laughs> Only two times did they have to immediately start playing the Star Spangled Banner, so that's good. Because the Hollywood canteen was so socially progressive, of course the FBI infiltrated <laughs> it, put a file out on them uh, because they thought they were communists. All progressive ideas at the time were considered to be communist. Free food, communism. <laughs> Free food, communism. <laughs> Free samples, communism. Yeah. There's Korean people here, communism. <laughs> Christmas and Thanksgiving were celebrated at the canteen, servicemen being admitted in shifts. A canter dressed as Santa and a huge Christmas tree was brought in. Burns and Allen or Lena Horn or whoever was entertaining would perform for hours on holidays. Paulette Goddard and Olivia de Havilland would serve men, ham and turkey. They would serve like 5,000 people in a day. Bing Crosby would come and sing Christmas carols. That sounds incredible. Yeah, I would love that. Like the opening of White Christmas when all the soldiers are real sad yeah. and it's just, oh, it's great. Imagine Bing Crosby singing White Christmas to you on Christmas Eve while Buster Keaton is bringing you like roast beef. And you hit him in the shoulder. Why can't you be like him? <laughs> Toughen up. Yeah, toughen, toughen up, up squeak. Yeah. It sounded like a big joyous space to exist while the world was at war. 
it really does sound like Europe is being torn apart and <laughs> this little space here is like a good thing is happening. It was such a wondrous place that, of course, Hollywood, the entity, not the place, had to try to capture it. In 1944, Warner Brothers released the movie Hollywood Canteen, which was just like a big song and dance. Maybe that's where I've heard of, because yeah. the name, I, I have no, I had never heard of this, but the name does sound familiar because I thought you were, t- I didn't think you were talking about this, but the first thing that came to mind was the Taco Bell Cantina in Hollywood. That's sad. But, um, <laughs> That's always the first thing that comes to mind. But yeah. maybe it was this movie that I was thinking of. It could be, yeah. It's one of those like variety show movies that just has like it's just right, like a right. like a movie star parade or like whatever. Stormy, uh, stormy, stormy weather. weather you're is that what it's like? yeah. That movie's called Stormy Weather's a movie, yeah. Where it's like all the black performers just basically like they each do like a performance. Yeah, and there's like a narrative like a loosely strung through it throughout it or whatever. Yeah, yeah this like that. Yeah, Robert Hutton would play a soldier visiting the canteen. They were trying to sell him to be like the new Jimmy Stewart, and it's just he's just too pale and <laughs> and basically all the stars. It was so. Yeah, where's Jimmy Stewart in all this? You know, I don't know. I think oh, he was. Oh, oh, I've got a peanut allergy. Did he really? Did he serve? I think uh, he served. I, I. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I served. I, or not. Uh, but I can't. I fell in that lake and my <laughs> ear went deaf. <laughs> I've been trying to kill myself in France for two months, and the, the angel won't let me. But yeah, they were, they were trying to make this guy a star, and it wasn't happening. But this guy goes to the Hollywood Canteen while visiting LA uh, in between serving, and wants to meet Joan Leslie. He wants to meet Joan Leslie. He was. A star at the time. Leslie Jones? He wants me Leslie Jones, yeah. The movie, try not to pull a muscle patting yourself on the back for what? Uh, it, <laughs> it really like came off as like, wow. You, the real you, heroes here yeah, are the we're, celebrities. Yeah, are the celebrities serving sandwiches. food. But like the movie, who did the movie have? I watched it this morning. Roy Rogers and Trigger did a little show oh. in the movie. Joey Brown comes up, gets some yucks. Ida Lupino's very funny in it. Peter Laurie and Sydney Greenstreet pop up and they Weird. do like their, their Maltese Falcon creep thing. <laughs> Uh, Jack Benny's very funny. Dorothy Malone's in the background, which I'm like, oh, sheesh, big deal. Was it filmed there? No, I think the exterior shot, mm. you could see Hollywood Canteen, but I'm sure the rest guess, of it was Warner Brothers. Yeah. yeah. But there really is in the, towards the end, a really great speech, like a really rousing speech about like unifying races and nationalities and different arms of the army, like army, navy, marines, all that. To like, different arms of the army. Yeah, whatever it's called. All the branches of the army. All right? the branches of the Navy. No, uh, all the branches of the armed forces is what I mean. But like, he's like, yeah, like we have people from China here learning how to be fighter pilots. We have Korean people here. Like the black people who are raised in America are here. Like we're all here to fight this war together. And it's it's, it's a great speech. It really is. And it's, uh, I wish the whole movie was that. <laughs> they just ended with the Gettysburg address. <laughs> if the movie was more about what it's like being a celebrity and having to like serve uh, people and also be in a movie, I would have maybe thought that was a little bit better, but whatever. You want to string a narrative about like, I'm telling you, I want to see the TV series of this place, all of the bear. And it's just <laughs> all of them really frantically yelling at each other. Cousin, cousin. Yeah, that's great. Your idea machine. I have to go, uh, get me in front of Irving Thalberg and yeah, the wonder boy, the movie more than the reading about it really did remind me like, Oh, just because you're a soldier and you're not allowed to pick up on a actress hostess or junior hostess and get their number. Doesn't mean that they were probably objectified a lot and mm. made remarks to the movie doesn't do that as much, but it, it really does. <laughs> oh no. The movie from the forties, the movie from the forties, propaganda movie from the forties. Yeah. The, it, it, it has a couple moments where like, Jesus, this is like the one guy's like democracy is the strongest thing. I'm like, Oh boy, it's maybe not. Um, but I'm thinking about like, communist. Oh yeah. Like it kind of is objectifying 
to some degree. Yeah. To a large degree, probably. It's, it's a, their novelty. They're, they're props, basically. Yeah, exactly. Or something that the studio could just give away and like, go oh, dance with a bunch of soldiers <laughs> is still objectification. In spring of 1945, Mussolini was executed. Hitler killed himself all the way to Argentina. <laughs> and the Americans committed a war crime by dropping the future on Japan and burning shadows into the ground. America, good. The war was effectively over. And with that, the need for the canteen was no more. VE Day at the canteen was an exuberant blast of joy and celebration. And with that, the Hollywood canteen had served its purpose by providing a welcome relief for soldiers, both men and women. The Hollywood canteen was to be closed on August 30th, although it managed to stay open till Thanksgiving of that year. Many servicemen were saddened to hear about it because they hadn't, well, million, uh, like over a million soldiers had gone to the Hollywood canteen, many, many more. They had a sign out front that said over a million yeah, served. Yeah, they counted them. There was still a lot that hadn't been there yet. The last day, November 22nd, 1945, the line of servicemen stretched along the block. <laughs> it was bittersweet and a beautiful way for it to all end. It wasn't like, it didn't go into disrepair. It wasn't... Oh, it went out in its prime. Yeah, it went out in its prime. It went out when it was time to go out. Must be nice. It must be like a British show. Um, <laughs> it had three seasons and a Christmas, uh, yeah, Christmas Thanksgiving special. Yeah, Thanksgiving special and then <laughs> called it. During the Korean War in 1950, there was another attempt to open a new Hollywood canteen at where Florentine Gardens is on Hollywood Boulevard, but that didn't last very long. A lot of photos have come from the Hollywood canteen, and some can argue that it looks like propaganda or, like I said, exploitive photo op. But reading about this magical place really does show that for a brief moment in U.S. history, there was something close to unifying harmony. Like, when they talk about everything coming together in World War II, people getting jobs that they couldn't have gotten before and everyone sort of banding together, it, it really is like solidified in this idea that the Hollywood canteen exists. Everyone did their part and served in whatever capacity they were capable of. And Hollywood in its heyday didn't shy away from stepping up and doing its part. That's the Hollywood canteen. Heroes. Not the people who served in the foreign wars. Crushing Hitler and its forces. Not them. The people who so valiantly and bravely didn't get tips. <laughs> You're a monster? <laughs> to bring out. Yeah. <laughs> to bring out a bunch of buttered bread to... To these brave young individuals. I wonder if people complained, like this sandwich is really bad and you had a complaint to yeah, somebody who, on a movie poster yeah. across the street, <laughs> someone who made $3 million last year for a supporting role. And Gary Cooper comes running out of the kitchen with you with a knife. Yeah. You call my souffles flat? I'll cut you. <laughs> well, we've talked about where the Hollywood people worked. <laughs> yeah, worked and played, yeah. Now we're going to talk about where they lived and played. Oh my God. You don't live where you play. Well, sometimes you play where you eat. <laughs> and sometimes you eat what you play. And that brings us back to Garfield. Um, <laughs> I don't really know a lot. I mean, I, I know that your place... You don't know a lot about it? Just, just do your thing. A la board. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to be talking about one of the legendary old Hollywood living quarters slash party pads. Oh, boy. Remembered affectionately and also literally as the Garden of Allah. Yes. Yes, it was. So you don't know? I know I know it as an entity, a place where people lived. It was in Hollywood. And it was uh, every once in a while you hear about like, oh, Clark Gable got kicked out of living with his wife. So he ended up at the Garden of Allah. Yeah. It was sort of the YMCA of its day. The, yeah, it had a very YMCA quality, but people also just kind of lived there. Okay. Like, it's not a hotel like we think of a hotel. Right. Like, people... Flophouse? A luxury flophouse. <laughs> the nicest flophouse <laughs> you'll ever see. So, to begin, we have to first talk about who Allah is. <laughs> 
Here's a photo of him. No! <laughs> Call off the fatwa. <laughs> this Allah doesn't have an H in it. Yeah, I'm going to... Uh, so we, there, we had Abraham. We had Isaac. <laughs> but some people believed Abraham was the Jesus, I think. I don't know. I know he delivered the Gettysburg Address, and a lot of people think that's the free bird of its day. So we're talking about Allah Nazimova. This okay. is a person. No H, Allah, A-L-L-A. Like okay. All, all, all aboard. <laughs> or as she was born in 1879 in Yalta, Miriam Edes Adelaida Leventon. Love it. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue the way falling downstairs is rolling <laughs> falls off the tongue like my tongue falls out after i fall down the stairs <laughs> so she was born into a jewish family both of our the seeds of our stories yeah. were from Jew- little jewish kids yeah we well, you know we just have a lot of jewish pride uh, yeah. yeah you and me i mean you especially <laughs> i've never met anyone more proud to be jewish than greg gonzalez <laughs> So she was born into a Jewish family to an abusive dad and a philandering mom. So when they mercifully broke up when she was young, she was sent to a Swiss boarding school. After school, she made the shameful decision to get into the salacious world of Russian acting, a decision her dad allowed her to make, but forbade her from using her family name until she got good because he didn't want to be embarrassed by her. So now she went by the name we know her as Ala Nazimova. He made her change her name because he didn't want... Like that hey, is so is that your daughter who I saw in a stage play in Siberia? <laughs> Yet. Yeah, she she got her cues wrong and she doesn't know really know how to block. She's bad at just standing in front of people. Um oh and that's not my daughter. She has a different name altogether. Oh, that's Ali Nazimova. That's so relatable. <laughs> the, like, oh, change your name until you're good. Is there's something about that that's like doing the Rolodex through my memories right now. Like, yeah, it feels like a thing that happens a lot. I mean, one day once we get big enough, if we get enough supporters on Patreon, Greg will go back to his birth name. Yeah, my birth name, which is I can't I can't say right now, but it I'm in the Bush family. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a uh, middle initial. <laughs> you might have heard of him. Um, so Allah was a nickname for her, one of her names, Adelaida, Allah. Oh. And Nazimova was the name of the main character in a book she liked called Children of the Streets. <laughs> I mean, she's, this is a Russian child. Yeah, so. yeah. It, it, that's what I was going to say is like, yeah. this is a, a Russian young adult series is yeah. still very sad. Yeah. Oh, daddy, can I play with my favorite piece of coal today? But daddy had died three days ago and I was talking to just a bunch of a coat on a on I was a talking heater. to a Cossack. <laughs> um, so luckily her unbelievably oppressive and let's be frank, Russian dad died. So she was shuffled around between family members in Moldova and then mm-hmm. Ukraine until she got into the big time and went to study acting at the Moscow Arts Theater under Konstantin Stanislavski, the creator Whoa. of the method oh, acting technique. And through them, she toured around Russia acting in various stage shows. So she learned from like literally the best. Yeah. She learned Dell Close method through Dell Close. Basically. Yeah. She also studied the Kaminsky method, whatever that <laughs> means. And then she got on the wrong side of the people on the wrong side of history. Being Jewish, she was cast in a show about the oppression of Jews in Russia called The Chosen People. Right. That the powers that be in Russia warned them to stop performing. When they didn't, their show was forcibly shut down by the police. So they left Russia and took the show to the perpetually tolerable city of the Jewish plight, Berlin. Oh, my God. But this, this show is going on the road because it has to. <laughs> to the safest place for Jewish people yeah. in the late 1800s. The, this was long before Germany went uh, yes. as cuckoo as a clock in the Schwarzwald. So the <laughs> show became a hit and Allah became a recognizable name for Berlin this show. Berlin loves Jewish people and it will forever. Yeah, they had a big sign, a big neon sign that just glowed Jews. <laughs> 
they still use that sign, but it meant a different thing a few years later. So they were a hit in Berlin. So this allowed them to take the show to Europe's big stage, London. And from there, they were able to take it to the world's big stage, America. <laughs> the Chosen People opened on Broadway at the Herald Square Theater in New York City on March 23rd, 1905, starring Ala Nazimova. Wow. So this solidified That's, her... She could almost take her real name. I know. <laughs> Her, her dad from Beyond the Grave. Yeah. You can have your name back when you're starring in Hollywood. And then when she's starring in Hollywood. How much did it gross? <laughs> <laughs> you can have your name back when you're a big star on TikTok. <laughs> Domestic or international? <laughs> uh, n- no, not yet. <laughs> Are you the biggest face on the poster? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, not yet. Did it beat Titanic? <laughs> The boat? Is there a spinoff? <laughs> oh, no, 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 not yet. Not yet. <laughs> so this solidified her as a major name in theater, especially given her method acting and her look. So she was like, like people hadn't seen this sort of thing, like yeah. a dark Jewish Russian girl who was doing like Marlon Brando style oh, acting. Okay. Like people, this was crazy to people yeah. who, you know, think of Fred Mertz doing a performance on stage. <laughs> The duality, the comedy tragedy mask. Yeah. On one side, there's Ala Nazimova. The other side, there's Fred Mertz. Yeah, William Frawley. Yeah. No, Fred Mertz. Fred Mertz. Specifically, Fred Mertz. Uh, William Frawley is a great actor. Fred Mertz is not. <laughs> so from this, she started doing other Broadway shows. And from that, she started touring the country doing shows, making her a nationwide name in American theater among the greats, like John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> <laughs> a great American people stage. Had great aim. <laughs> she never missed her mark. That's one guy who you can't ask to do the Gettysburg Address <laughs> in front of people. He would get kind of mad about it <laughs> in prison. Yeah, the open mic at prison. <laughs> what did he die? Was he killed? Did he go to prison or was he? He was killed. Was he like by a posse or something? Yeah, wasn't he? Didn't he like, burn down in a barn or something? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he did. He went out like Scarface. Everything cooled down. So he's like, I'm going to go to the theater real quick. <laughs> he sneaks into a building, not realizing where it is. And he's yeah. like, I'll just sit in this uh, a and, little. And, this here. and it's like the murder scene yeah. where he killed Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> say hello to my little brother, who was also an actor yeah. after him. And who did he save? Abraham Lincoln's son? No, yeah, yeah. One of Abraham Lincoln's son was like about to be hit by a train or something. Yeah. John Wilkes Booth's brother, was it? I think Safety? so, yeah. I think that's how it goes. Well, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So anyway, she met Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> she, she met Grover Cleveland. She met Rudyard Kipling, Mark wow. Twain, and she slept with a ton of men. Probably not those ones, but other men. She helped her family. Well, I don't know, maybe Rudyard Kipling. Yeah. She helped get her family out of the hellhole that Russia was and continues to be becoming when her sister husband died so she brought her and her kids her her nieces and nephews to move in with her in new york this family changed their last name to luton and the son grew up to be val luton who's oh. the producer of cat people among other you're kidding <laughs> no it's that weird wow really yeah she brought them over from from russia and he became val luton yeah wow that's Cool. Also not related to anything, but crazy. This is one of two crazy, like okay. weird tributaries that this story takes that I don't, we're just going to have to back out of those back into the main story. That's fine. Line. She also opened up her own theater called Nazimova's 39th Street Theater on April 18th, 1910. But in 1915, her life changed forever. Louis Selznick saw her in a play <laughs> and hired her to make a short movie of one of her one-act shows. It made a huge profit, so in 1917, he signed her to a five-year deal, but his company was preparing to make a big move all the way out west to a sleepy little Pueblo town named Hollywood. Well, you see, Thomas Edison invented (laughs) cameras with some friends. And John Wilkes Booth... (laughs) 
He shot it. His shot little a brother saved the baby camera. It was a, it was the, a crazy the baby story. Camera's brother was Val Luton. <laughs> I'm trying to remember it. And his brother was Val Kilmer. So as part of his stable of stars moving out to Hollywood, Ala Nazimova was following him out west. Okay. And she became a massive silent movie star in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So massive that any decision made on one of her movies had to get her approval. Oh my God. And she was being paid $3,000 more a week than the other massive female movie, 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 movie mogul, movie mogul, the old movie mogul herself, mm-hmm. Mary Pickford. Picky Mayford. Picky Mayford. Picky Mayford herself. So she was making more money than Mary Pickford in her heyday. But where would a massive movie star putting Mary Pickford to shame live? Most movie people lived in Silver Lake or West Adams, but she wasn't really into that. Hollywood as an area was only just becoming a thing. So that was out. And Beverly Hills didn't allow Jews. So bad luck again. The Berlin of Los Angeles. (laughs) We all know it. We're all scared to say it. (laughs) Hollywood was a developing ghetto at the time. But that nether stretch between what was becoming Hollywood and what was the absolute worst of Beverly Hills, many worst eras, was just right for her. In particular, 8080 Sunset Boulevard, which is now 8152. Uh, number change, yeah. Sunset Boulevard, right on what is now Crescent Heights across from the AMC Sunset, which was always there. So that, <laughs> like, the thing that turns into, like, Laurel Canyon. Wait. So it's around Chateau Marmont? It's near there. Okay. But it's it's you you know where that like mall Yeah. Across the street from there. My coworker Kyle got his car broken into at that sunset AMC recently. Well, don't go blaming all Nazimova, okay? Where was she? Does he have A-list? Because that wouldn't have happened if he had A-list. <laughs> they have security watching your car if you have A-list. So on that same side that Chateau Marmont is on, on that block there? No, 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 no. So Chateau Marmont is on the north side. Oh, you're side. talking about the mall where the McDonald's used to be that they knocked down? Yes. Okay, got it. Keep in mind the phrase knocked down. So this was a 3.5 acre. She home. lived in the McDonald's? No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> McDonald Kentucky Fried Chicken and a Pizza Hut. <laughs> so this was a 3.5 acre home named Havenhurst McDonald's. Uh, it was called Havenhurst after the man who built it, William Hay, who is the guy who designed the whole neighborhood there in general. This is why the street near there is called Havenhurst. They dropped the Y. And why there's also another street nearby called Hayworth. It's also where the one in the valley, Havenhurst, got its name. But we were respectful enough here to keep the Y. And speaking of respectful, it's also the name of the house that the Jacksons lived in in Encino. Oh my that house was God. also called Havenhurst. Bizarre. <laughs> uh, on Havenhurst. On Havenhurst. So the house had 40 rooms with 12 bedrooms and four bathrooms and cost him $200,000. Oh my God. He built that, which, uh, I mean, to live that close to an AMC. (laughs) (laughs) McDonald's coming soon. Sign. Even better. Yeah. That sign was up for 30 years. (laughs) And the A-list was just all the celebrities would come to his house. So he built this house in 1913 for he and his wife to live in, but their marriage quickly dissolved. So by 1915, the whole house was empty. Went through all these rooms. Want to build a harem now? I don't know how to talk to women. I built a house with 12 rooms for a married couple to live in. <laughs> so, hey, it's for us to fight in. Yeah, we have 12. We have, you have 11 different rooms to sleep in if you're mad at me. Don't divorce me. Um, so Hay didn't know what to do with this place. So with World War the first one raging, he did the noble thing because he couldn't find anyone who would rent it and allowed the Red Cross to use it as a headquarters. A hero. But once the war was over, they were out on the streets because now there was money to be made. And, and there'll that- never be another war again. <laughs> Hear that, Buster? <laughs> Red Cross shut down. Take that, Franz Ferdinand. And that money was coming out of the pockets of maybe the biggest starlet in Hollywood looking for a place to live, 
a la Nazimova. Hell yeah. She nabbed the place from the Red Cross and started renting it as her home, but then bought it outright in August 1919 for $65,000. Uh, what a great flip on Hayes. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And then pumped even more money into it, remodeling the whole thing. She revamped the house and the garden full of orange trees, cedars, palms, birds of paradise, poinsettias, a lily pond, and most importantly, she put in a giant 65 foot by 45 foot pool that people said was shaped like the Black Sea of her homeland, but oh. she denies that was the idea. Weird. Now, this was being built either concurrently or slightly before Pick Fair over in Beverly oh, Hills, okay. where the non where the goys could live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which claims to have Pick Fair, as we recall, claims to have had the first private residence pool in the city. Right. So there's going to have to be some deep diving, get it? Mm. Chat GPT, into <laughs> which of these pools were finished first. Oh, right. Was okay. it Alanazimovas? Is this the Coles, Philippe's of uh, it kind rich of people? is, okay. yeah, of pools. Yeah, pools. <laughs> but I like the spicy pool. <laughs> um, it's more of a dinner pool. <laughs> but Alanazimovas does lay claim to being the biggest pool. Okay. So No question there. Yeah, it's the Philippe's. But Alanazimova can't live at a place called Havenhurst like some Jackson. She needed to give it a name <laughs> of her own. So going off of the name of a popular book by Robert Smythe Hitchens called The Garden of Allah. So mm. as is the tradition in naming things in LA, she went with the pun and named it The Garden of Allah without the H, much like Havenhurst without the Y. Very funny. So her the, the Garden of Allah was a pun. I think like pun titles are really... People love bad. And uh, oh, I think hang on, they, wait. I'm getting some feedback. <laughs> there must be. You must have some sort of. Uh, is your pacemaker going off or something? Because <laughs> you said something mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the rabies is taking effect. Can you drink water? <laughs> if you can't drink water, then you have rabies, and that explains why you're being mean. So now Allah had her garden to live in. But she, we're going to get... Al Jazeera is never going to run this. <laughs> so she had her garden to live in, but she was still stuck in Dawn of Hollywood, Hollywood, and there was kind of nothing around that area, which yeah. she hated. She hated the lack of culture in LA, which was something you could say 100 years ago, but not today. So stop. So she decided to create a haven of culture within her own home. A haven of culture. This star is banging this star. Culture. Oh, man. Just wait, Craig. I mean, you talk about stars banging stars. Start thinking stars banging stars banging stars. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you get a Big Bang Theory. I, That's how you get a young no, child. It was no theory. <laughs> this theory was proven. <laughs> the proof was... Uh, Irre irrefutable. It's the kind of proof that Eddie Mannix has to snuff out. <laughs> she started a women's group called the 8080 Club after her address. And invested 69 years. <laughs> oh, you've never 80 <laughs> You never 80 80 before? <laughs> you never went 80 for Brady before? <laughs> <laughs> so they would meet every Saturday night to talk about challenging artistic and social things. The top female artists in all the arts in Hollywood and European expats would come over and they talk and drink and talk and drink. Yeah. All I would walk around smoking cigarettes out of a foot long ebony cigarette holder. Oh like that's God. the sort of place. It was all very highbrow eyebrow. Desmond? But their brains weren't the only things being stimulated. <laughs> there was another element to these social salons that set the stage for what this place mostly became known for for the rest of its history. Okay. All on Izimova was married for a second time to a man, but she was by no means faithful and she was by no means straight. She takes after her mother. Um, Wait, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I didn't think about that. Uh, huh. I, noticed, I noticed patterns. I'm a guy who noticed patterns. Wait a minute. I think I just had a breakthrough. I'm going to cry. I got to call my mom real quick. I got to call my mom. I, I, I got to go cheat on my wife real quick. <laughs> so around 1915, she realized, oh, I like women as well as men. And her constantly being cheated on husband just kind of went with it. 
these two became super cool. So <laughs> these two people in the story just became official Los Angeles residents. You live in Hollywood for three years and all of a sudden. <laughs> all of a sudden, everyone's kissing everybody. You get one AMC A-list pass <laughs> and then it's just all morals are out the window. <laughs> So this 8080 Club wasn't just an intellectual gathering for the elite women of Los Angeles. It was also a safe haven for all the lesbians and bisexual women in town who were forced to stay in the closet to come and be themselves, both in ideas and also sexually. And in the flesh. <laughs> or outside of the flesh. <laughs> so they were skeletons. Yeah. Uh, Allah came up with the code of referring to these safe gatherings for queer women as sewing circles. Okay. And these Saturday night gatherings always turned into Sunday afternoon all-women pool parties where clothing was 100% optional. Okay. So a lot of horny stuff was happening at the Garden of Allah and right. the titular Allah herself's rumored list of, to put it delicately, horny conquests. <laughs> My God. Listen to this. Okay. Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, uh-huh. Anna Mae Wong, wow. Oscar Wilde's niece, both of Rudolph Valentino's wives. Oh my God. <laughs> Not everybody at these gatherings were gay. And one person they went out of their way to say that she didn't have an affair with, which makes me think they definitely had an affair, was Nancy Reagan's mom. Oh, wow. They hung out because Nancy Reagan, mother Nancy Reagan, was a radical feminist, which is why Ala Nazimova, here's the other detour, Ala Nazimova was Nancy Reagan's godmother. What? Yeah, really, really, really weird. Weird. Similar to Pickfair, the Garden of Allah became a Hollywood hub, but different from Pickfair, it was exclusively women and mostly gay women. And for that, it was more intellectual than Douglas Fairbanks running around in knight's armor or whatever was going on at Pickfair. Like it was, <laughs> it was like people having intelligent conversations and then having an orgy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> not just the orgy, <laughs> and not just Douglas Fairbanks nude jogging. Right. But it didn't take long for these two places to become more similar than not. Neither Allah nor her decoy husband were good with their money, which was not good not long after she bought this house when Allah's career started to tank. Her studio contract ended in 1921 and she decided to start financing her own movies, which lost her a ton of money. So she needed help managing her finances. So in May 1924, she hired a couple named Jean and John Adams, not that one, to be her business managers. At this point, her biggest financial asset was the Garden of Allah. So Jean and John Adams convinced her to convert... uh, (laughs) Let's call it the Garden of... Garden of Moses, (laughs) the Garden of Judas. (laughs) They convinced her to convert it into a hotel that she could make money off of forever. So this is exactly what she did. The house was turned into guest rooms and a hotel and bar and 25 two-story bungalow villas were added throughout the gardens, like personal places to stay. Few people actually stayed in the main house and even fewer spent time in the restaurant because the real draw were these private bungalows that were going for between 200 to 400 a month because this wasn't a hotel. Like I said, in the modern sense, this was like, extended stay i live in a hotel in the era i'm gonna spend a night at the ymca sort of thing sure sure so it was a place to stay long term for people just coming to la or in la temporary to make it in showbiz or celebrities who were between marriages right like this was kind of if you didn't want to commit to buying a house you would live here for months at a time okay and these bungalows were great because you had your own place and easy access to the pool which boasted the longest extension cord in the world Back then, you could brag about that. It was four feet. (laughs) The grand opening was January 9th, 1927, with an 18-hour-long party attended by the likes of John Barrymore, Marlena Dietrich, and Jack Dempsey. You couldn't get rid of Marlena Dietrich. No. uh, Did she work? Like, did she... I mean, you drive around Los Angeles at like 11 o'clock on a weekday, and you're like, does anyone have a job here? It was always like this. Like, Marlena Dietrich is just serving sandwiches to veterans and parties. 
partying up at partying, the Gardens yeah. of All Off. Didn't sleep a wink. <laughs> Where is my little rascal shorts, Marlena Dietrich? <laughs> You're too good to hang out with Hal Roach? <laughs> also, uh, Japanese butlers, whatever that means. I guess maybe it's self-explanatory. Yeah, I think it might be. Colorful lights at night and what sounded like a mariachi band was oh, playing. The ghost of a mariachi band. The, the first guest to actually check in there was an actress named Madeline Herlock. Uh-huh. So the deal was that the hotel had a 99-year lease from Nazimova who would get 14500 $500 a month and 50% of the profits. And within a year of the place opening, Nazimova was bankrupt. Oh my God. Not because of the lack of success of the hotel, but because Gene and John Adams were con artists. Oh no. <laughs> Nazimova never got any of her payments and then Gene and John both disappeared. It turned out they were wanted for a similar real estate fraud in the Midwest. So now all on Nazimova was ruined. Oh my and God. And on July 17, 1928, she was forced to sell the place back to its original owner, William Hay, for $80,000 this guy's like bare, like bad businessman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like charge her more. Yeah. Take advantage of this destitute actress. Ask for her bones. <laughs> $80,000 and teach me the Kaminsky method. <laughs> <laughs> but after all her debts were settled, she was left with $7,500 to her name. Jeez. Sad ending for Alan Asimova, but the story of the Garden of Allah was just beginning. Hay revamped the hotel and reopened it on September 28th, 1928 with even more bungalow villas, but then he flipped it to the Central Holding Company in 1929, who revamped it again, bringing the number of bungalow villas to 38. Wow. They actually had bigger plans to build a giant high-rise tower with 300 hotel rooms and a theater to get ready for the 1932 Olympics, but that never materialized. Uh, what they did Good. add, however, was an H to the end of the name, so now it wasn't the Garden of Allah, it was the Garden of Allah. Yeah, it wasn't a pun anymore. No, it was just religious. Yeah. Which Allah with no H was not happy about, and I'm <laughs> sure the Allah with H was also not happy about, knowing that, that No guy. one was happy. <laughs> But this was when the Garden of Allah entered its truly golden age. And by golden, I mean most deranged. Because of its luxury and relative seclusion from the rest of the city, this place became a magnet for celebrities. Like I said, people in town for showbiz stuff would take their extended stays here. People would perform at the Coconut Grove. They'd stay at the Garden of Allah. They even had guards patrolling the grounds to make sure looky-loos weren't sneaking around gawking at the entertainment elite that were staying there. Jeez. It was a place where the artists of Hollywood could go to complain to each other about how Hollywood was ruining their art. Oh my God. Great. And because so, so authors. Well, I mean, you know who stayed here. Was it Faulkner or Fitzgerald? Uh, maybe both of them, but definitely one of them. Okay. I remember that's how I first became aware right. of the place. Yeah. yeah. So because of this clientele, it became a total den of debauchery. Mm. Lots of drugs, lots of nudity. The best way to convey what this place was like is to just give you a long catalog of some of the guests that lived there and some stories about what they did while they were here. This is what I'm here for. This is like, we've often talked about the jazz anecdotes book that we yeah. had to read in our right. jazz class that just told like crazy stories about different jazz musicians. There's a whole book I have on my desk over there written by, I think not Hedda Hopper, but like one of those people about just like the weirdest things that happened at the Garden I of Allah. I gotta see this. Okay. So let's like, Let's read silently for a few minutes. So you had your Ramon Navarro, right. Al Jolson, Raymond Chandler, Cole Porter, Gloria Swanson, Lawrence Olivier, Vivian Lee, Jackie Gleason, Burl Ives, Ernst Lubitsch, Ernest Hemingway, David Niven, John Carradine, Orson Welles, Ronald Reagan, the actor, Ginger Rogers. Mm. Let's just say Ginger Rogers. Like, let's pick a name out randomly. 
Frank Sinatra, Ava Gardner, Artie Shaw, Leopold Stokowski, W. Somerset Mogum, <laughs> uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, of course, yeah. wrote The Last Tycoon while he stayed there. Yeah. Errol Flynn had almost as many affairs there as he'd had cocaine. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall would have their trysts there before yeah. they were married. One time, Bogart's wife barged in on them and chased him around the grounds with a knife. She was a psycho, so that sounds like it, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. Blame the victim of oh, my God. Humphrey Bogart's <laughs> banging around with Bacall. Beautiful sentence you just said. Bogart bangs Bacall. <laughs> uh, print it. While he was filming The Hunchback of Notre Dame, here's my Charles Lawton story. Yeah. He would float in the pool on his brakes <laughs> to cool down in full Quasimodo makeup. <laughs> <laughs> Quasimodo's day off. <laughs> Quasimodo goes west. Uh, so Quasimodo's day off and he's with the Phantom of the Opera. Quasi, we've got to turn back the odometer on my dad's coach. Um, <laughs> he's going to totally flip out that I took his horses. It was his favorite Mustang. <laughs> uh, so one morning, Tommy Torsi. Uh, okay, this is. A, th I was debating whether or not I should put this story in because it's gross. One morning, Tommy Dorsey was arguing with another band leader named Kay Kaiser about who had a more rabid fan base. And to make his point, Tommy Dorsey called out two naked women from his bedroom who had the letters T and D shaved into their pubic hair. Like, there's a lot of gross stories like this that came out of this place. Yeah. And I'm about to tell you all of them. Yeah. Did you ruin Tommy Dorsey for uh, me? <laughs> impossible. <laughs> 10 reasons why we can't listen to Tommy <laughs> Dorsey anymore. That's our chat GBT title. <laughs> yeah. That's our YouTube video. Chat GBT. Design me the most clickable article about Tommy Dorsey. <laughs> We're going to ruin Tommy Dorsey for TikTok. You won't believe who <laughs> shaved what into their what about Tommy Dorsey. Uh, so one time. This is my favorite story. Yeah. One time Harpo, maybe my favorite story ever. You just need to say Harpo Marx and I'm already <laughs> like, this is the best story. Harpo Marx was staying there and his neighbor was driving him crazy. You'll understand why this is my favorite story. A neighbor was driving him crazy playing piano at midnight, keeping him up. So to retaliate, Harpo Marx woke up at 5 a.m. and played Rachmaninoff as loud as possible. And the guy next door changed bungalows that morning. Turned out the guy he chased out was Rachmaninoff. <laughs> <laughs> How that did not end up in a Marx Brothers movie, I'll never know. That is so funny. It's really, the Marx Brothers meet Rachmaninoff. <laughs> so Dorothy Parker mm -hmm. had welcome mats on both sides of her bed. Uh, the acknowledged master of ceremonies there seemed to be Robert Benchley, which, you know, Robert Benchley? That name sounds really He's, familiar. You oh, might that's... be thinking of the guy who wrote Jaws. That's the guy who wrote Jaws is, I think, his grandson. Robert Benchley was like... Dorothy Parker's he, he like man. Yeah, yeah. And he like started the Harvard Lampoon or he was like... Oh, yeah, that's he, right. He was a funny man. He was a funny man. That's right. Um, that's how I know his name. But he I, made yuck yucks. But he was with Parker. Yeah, yeah they were the Algonquin, part of the like main two of the Algonquin round table. Yes. So Robert Benchley was there also, which is why between him and Parker, the place was referred to as the Algonquin round table gone west and childish. Okay. Childish. Okay. One night, Benchley was forced to play a game of charades, which he hated. So it was his turn to act something out. He got on all fours and he started crawling and everyone's like, a uh, dog, uh, 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 armadillo. Yeah. So he just kept crawling. He crawled out the door and just left. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Great. There, there's a lot of really funny that stories about so Robert Benchley. There great. was one where this is where Benchley came up with the line that he'd jump in the pool and then get out of his wet clothes and into a dry martini, which was a line appropriated into like four different movies right. that they got from Robert Benchley. That's funny. And that pool. Oh, that pool, Greg. Clara Bow. 
St- the it girl herself? She started the tradition of having nightly cocktail parties by this pool. Killer. Every single night you would go and drink and party by the pool. Anybody who this. was anybody would be by that pool flirting and drinking. Jumping into, being pushed into, or falling into that pool was a rite of passage. Okay. Tallulah Bankhead was allegedly made a quote, very satisfied Jane by Tarzan himself, Johnny Weissmuller, in the pool. Oh, my God. Other people she was with at the hotel were Barbara Stanwyck, Joan Crawford, and Gary Cooper. One time she got a telegram delivery at her bungalow, and she answered the door. She was completely naked with a monkey on her head, and it should be noted the delivery boy handed the telegram to the monkey. (laughs) Here's for the adult here. (laughs) Grow up. Grow up. The place just sounded insane, and it had that reputation. H.B. Warner was the guy playing Jesus in Cecil B. DeMille's The King of Kings, mm-hmm. and when he found out, when Cecil B. DeMille found out that he was staying at the Garden of Allah, he told him, do not leave your bungalow. <laughs> <laughs> they have a dresser there. Put it in front of the door. <laughs> the door opens inwards. No one can get to you. Here's wood. Block the windows. You might end up having sex if you go out the door. Oh, yeah, I'd hate that. <laughs> if you hear splashing... Don't go out. Don't look out the window. Do not. The only splashing I want to hear is when you're cleaning yourself in the bathtub. (laughs) If it was late at night, you could just walk around the grounds. And if there was a window with a light on in it, that meant a party was going on in there and you were welcome. Like you would just go anywhere and there would always be something. John Barry, Johnny Barrymore. John Barrymore had a Johnny B. Barry. Johnny Johnny B. Barrymore. (laughs) Johnny B. Bad. (laughs) He had a bike on the premises for this reason. So he could go from party to party, wasting as little drinking time as possible. Like he wanted to get as quickly yeah. as he could to the next My drink. legs aren't working good enough. But it was also a community during World War the Second one, Gloria Stewart, aka the old lady from Titanic. Oh, right. The the sequel to the actual boat. Sure. Uh, would collect everybody's ration tickets and use them to go shopping at the Fairfax Farmers Market and make big communal feasts for everybody wow, there. That's very nice. Rent and payments were often forgiven or ignored completely. The switchboard operator would purposely drop calls from people trying to reach the celebrities if he didn't like their attitude. And wow. everybody got everything they needed from Schwab's nearby, oh, right. including the Hershey bar that killed F. Scott Fitzgerald. That's right. And Nathaniel West died on his way to F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, funeral. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's a little fact that I know. <laughs> During its heydays of around 1935 to 45, it was truly one of those legendary old Hollywood places where a lot of the stories we associate with old Hollywood came from. Mm-hmm. They even filmed DOA and In a Lonely Place there. <gasps> In a Lonely Place was filmed there? Yeah. But around 1945 is when things started to kind of sour. That was also the year that Ala Nazimova, who had been allowed to move back in there completely down on her luck in 1941, I think they let her there for free. She died in her room in 1945 after battling cancer and then a heart attack on July 13th. Even by the early 40s, things were kind of looking run down. And as the 40s went on and turned into the 50s, celebrity tastes changed. And an old place like this was no longer in favor as the celebs of the day preferred to be at a place like the Chateau Marmont right right nearby, which is more private and had less of a loud public reputation. Yeah. Beverly Hills Hotel is also like like a mile away or something. Yeah. On top of that, more celebrity and the AMC right there. Yeah, right. It's right there. Celebs are just, they just, it's an A-list for a reason. It's right there. And then McDonald's is coming up any day now. (laughs) Oh, it's coming. They haven't built the structure yet, but I know it's coming. (laughs) On top of that, more celebrities were building giant mansions behind big gates and carrying out their debauchery in those private manners rather than in a public hotel. Which sounds lame. So the gar- It sounds dangerous. <laughs> so the Garden of Allah started being populated less by genuine stars and more by wannabes or sad hanger-ons. Right. In 1957, it was bought by Frank Earhart, who was the 
general manager of Mocambo on the Sunset Strip. Yeah. And he renovated and expanded. It was still a dump by then. And with a guy like that running the place, the mafia started to get a hand in it. They would sense in sex workers to try to get intel on the celebs that would still hang around there and then use that to blackmail them. So it was like a mafia entrapment place. Yeah. There were lots of robberies. Uh, I think one of the people working there got murdered. Jeez. Uh, People were doing drugs, but not in a fun way. Finally, in 1959, it was sold to Lytton Savings and Loan with the intention of demolishing it and building a bank. To give the place a proper send-off, they planned one last party and invited 350 people to come and dress up as the famous guests from the heyday. A thousand people ended up coming with most dressed as Rudolph Valentino or Charlie Chaplin or Clara Bow or Mae West, and they screened Nazimova's Salome oh. in her honor, but it was sad. Like, it sounded really sad, and no actual celebrities were there. Ugh. Like, it was just kind of a yeah. dismal event. In June 1959, the Garden of Allah was raised once and for all. Supposedly, Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi is partially about the Garden of oh, Allah, wow. but she disputed that, but you could pretty much say that about every building ever built in Los Angeles. I thought it was about Amoeba, but yeah. <laughs> I thought it was about the McDonald's. <laughs> the bank itself became that they built there became a way less fun landmark in that area in itself, including the McDonald's, mm-hmm. was demolished in April 2021 to be made into a giant living, working, playing complex designed by Frank Gehry. But now those plans seem to have fallen through. So now we don't even have a parking lot where Paradise used to be. It's just <laughs> a big open pit. If you drive by there, it's like it's just dirt. They knocked down Paradise and that's the end of the song. <laughs> They paved paradise. Yeah, they paved paradise. <clears throat> I uh, I came up on La Cienega, hit sunset because I wanted to take the sunset trip down because I wanted to extend my daily commute by an hour. <laughs> and it, it really is sad, the things that are like, it, within the last couple of years, like that whole complex is gone. I didn't know it was Garden of Law or whatever, but like that was gone. Ami- you're sad about the McDonald's. Uh, amoeba. Yeah. Um. Sorry, Meltdown, Amoeba, Arclight, Viper Room's in danger. You can go online and add your name to a list. At all costs, protect the AMC, though. That's <laughs> all we Tower have. Tower Records. Tower Records Tower, is the other the, one. The yeah. shell of Tower Records yeah, the shell is of Tower Records, gone. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a it just I mean a long stretch of things that used to be. The thing that the the Frank Gehry thing they were gonna build actually looked kinda cool yeah. and probably would have I mean, we need more housing. It probably I mean, we don't need expensive housing, but yeah. it was housing. Yeah. It's better than a pit of dirt. Sure. <laughs> like Absolutely. I would have taken the bank. Yep. <laughs> At least people show up there and park. <laughs> so two things you can actually do if you want to have more Garden of Allah in your life after hearing all this. Yeah. Read that book that I was ta- telling you Let me about. Give a title for you. Oh, I read the Hollywood Canteen book, A Big Blue, and I forgot the title, but I get all my information over there. But this one's from Sheila Graham. It's called The Garden of Law, the story of a crazy, uninhibited hotel where the hotel is the star and the supporting players are the famous guests. Yeah, it's got a lot of really good stories. But also, another thing you can read is Martin Turnbull's, whose writings, yeah. I got a ton of info for this. Uh, he has a series of historical fiction novels set at the Garden of Allah, and I think he listens to us. Oh, m- I feel like we've communicated with him before. Maybe. I, I, if, I don't know if we've communicated with him, but what he does online is fantastic. Yeah, if you're yeah. an Alley History fan, you have to fart, follow Martin Turnbull. You have to fart. You have to fart in front of Martin Turnbull. <laughs> you're nobody unless you've done that. I was watching, uh, there's, I've forgotten now, I don't remember what it's called. I, I was watching it just before I left, but it's on Hulu. It's a, oh God, I'll have to post it when I remember, but it's like a six part series about Alley serial killers in the late 70s hmm. and uh, watching in the different talking heads are coming on and Joan Renner and I treat Joan Renner like it's seeing like the way people what, what's the 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 mascot that everyone freaks out about in Philadelphia gritty gritty I treat her like she's gritty oh, like oh. I freak out like I saw her she shot up 
She's that dead body. She Googled her eyes at me. <laughs> yeah, so Martin Turnbull stuff. Yeah. You can read his books if you want to hear about that. And uh, also, the original sign from the Garden of Allah is up for sale for $50,000. So if you want to get us an early Hanukkah gift, get us both of them. Split it in eight pieces. And <laughs> you can split it up in eight payments. We'll light, we'll light each yeah. letter. <laughs> And Allah would have loved that. Allah, Allah, you can't have a photo of him in your room, but you can buy us that sign. A giant sign that says Garden of Allah. And yeah, that's that's the Garden of Allah. Yeah, I might be thinking of Muhammad. Um, well, that's really great. That sounds insane. That sounds like yet another, just a, a debaucherous, insane yeah. place for Hollywood to have for a brief period. I mean, both of these play. it's kind of like the angel on e- the angel, yeah. and the devil on the shoulder, like the good things. The, the, yeah, it really is. It, it, sometimes... Hollywood could be activated to do a good thing. And for like this short three year period, they were really like trying their best. And they were like, I'm sure their lives outside of the Hollywood canteen was still pretty sleazy. So that, you know, well, volunteering. Did you hear where they lived? <laughs> exactly. But then like, as soon as like their, their shift was over and they weren't filming anything, they're like, I think I'm going to have sex with nine people. Yeah. I'm going to go put a monkey on my head and uh, bang around with Johnny Weissmuller. I'm going to leave all the fluids in my body in the pool. But like these two places are really loved and romanticized and respected as these old Hollywood stomping grounds. Like, yeah, it's because we talked about the the clubs on the Sunset Strip, but there weren't like that was more. I don't know. Like, I I I I feel like we didn't get stories like these. Yeah, yeah. Because people weren't working and living there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're there for a night, a week, or whatever. Or sometimes, you know, these two places are really held up as like some of the more. I think because of the literary nature of the Garden of Law, plus people live there, it has this sort of like, it has an air to it. I don't know. I can't it really does describe. have a, it. Well, I mean, it wasn't just like the movie stars, you know, black and white Clark Gable's mustache and you hear like, <laughs> but the, but it wasn't always sunny over here. Uh, it, it, it has like a, well, because, that's because of all on Azimova yeah. setting the tone of like, this is going to be an intellectual place yeah. before the orgies, before starts. the orgies. Yeah. Or hand in hand um, <laughs> or other things in hand. <laughs> And the Hollywood Canteen. Foot in hand. <laughs> Foot in hand for those weirdos out there. Um, and Hollywood Canteen really does exist in these photos that are really great photos. And we'll be sharing a lot of them of, you know, some of your favorite movie stars of that era working and like having like aprons that's, on and yeah, sweeping so up a, a canteen. Yeah. You can see them working something else in the pictures I'll be posting of the Garden of Allah. That's not a broom. Yeah. <laughs> That's no broom. That's yeah. Charles Lawton. So uh, before we get into our listener question for this yes. episode, we want to we ask you to do one thing every month. This month, it's been a while. Leave us a review on Apple yeah. Podcasts. Why not? Find something nice to say about us and say it in front of everybody on the internet. Get chappy. Cha- get chappy. Get chappy. Not chat GPT. Chappy. Log into chappy and get him to write you a prompt to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts for LA Meekly. He doesn't fight anymore. He's a BuzzFeed writer. <laughs> But he just lost his job, so he's looking for work. Yeah, leave us because it helps us. The more reviews we get, the more it shows people that, hey, this is a show maybe I should listen yeah. to. People seem to like it. Uh, people seem misinformed enough to like it. Uh, but yeah, so if you have an iPhone, open your podcast app and leave us a review. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. So listener question time. Now, this one I've been sitting on for a while, but I think it's time we finally okay. addressed it. This one is from... Our old pal, Yo Alex. Oh, hi, Yo Alex. Old friend of mine who I've known longer than you, actually. Yeah, you have. You threw up in his car window way before we met. <laughs> before you were even a tingle in my stomach of throwing <laughs> up in your car. <laughs> but yeah, Yo Alex, uh, here's his question that he had. 
Dan does that. That's me. He calls you Dan. Call me Dan. It makes me uncomfortable, but I. Duh. He knows you longer than me. He's so from can, New Jersey. Yeah. Dan does a podcast on LA, but refuses to leave the Valley. Why should we trust anything he says? I absolutely okay. agree with you. Know him. what? This you is, are so raw, raw Valley, and you're like, oh, is this? Oh, I have to go all the way to downtown. Okay, you're sick. You make me sick because he lives now in Culver City, and whenever boo. he would come, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I work there. Boo. <laughs> Whenever he would come to town, because his wife's family lives in Culver City, yeah. so he'd be in Culver City, and I don't want to drive to Culver City. Culver City's far, and also Culver City is confusing. Like uh, this is really why I wanted to answer this is to publicly address Culver City is it makes no sense. Like mm-hmm. the roads do not make sense. Like where you go once you get off the freeway to get to downtown Culver City is illogical. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't add up. Um, usually I would disagree with you because of my navigational prowess and I'm so good with knowing where I'm going. I have to go to Culver City five days a week now, which is the most I've ever had to go anywhere in my entire life. <laughs> the, it, it does have some weird places. The angles. The angles. The angles. The angles Culver right. and Washington and Venice all hitting each other at that Wendy's. It's not the Wendy's can't handle it. <laughs> um, I think because the freeway cuts it in one and then the Baldwin Hills yes. cut on the other end. It's sort of sandwiched in between, oh, three, well, the 10 and the 405 and then the Baldwin Hills on the other end. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it, it gets very, um, the streets have to compensate for all that stuff that's around it. And then like, if you go too far, you just hit the end of the continent. And you're like, oh, how did I get there? <laughs> I have never successfully left Culver City. I'm still in, in Culver, Culver City. City right I'm now. currently in Culver City. <laughs> it doesn't like it does not make sense to me. Yeah, it which is why me, I think we should ban Culver City. Uh, <laughs> West Adams will go to Mar Vista and there'll be nothing in between. Yeah, no, Culver City can be very confusing. It's funny that you say that because the valley is so boringly a grid. It's like um, it's so boring. Is it boring to know where you're going at all times? <laughs> huh? It's just like straight lines. Like it's I'm, I'm from Echo Park. And we have a lot of twisty, turny things, oh, but yeah. that's only to evade police. <laughs> it's designed, it designed. to. Ev- it was designed to evade police. <laughs> it was designed like the tunnels beneath Paris. <laughs> but it, it it doesn't look. If you want to get with me, you're meeting me in the valley, or you're meeting me in Westwood. Hey, as a friend of yous for for of yous for the last like twelve years, I'm gonna say yeah. I, I hate to break it to you. I think it's longer than that. <laughs> it might. I have no idea how much time has passed. Um, <laughs> it's only 2020. Well, if it was it's 2021, only 2021 <laughs> it'd be 12 years. Yeah. No, this, that's that's you. Anytime I have to drag you to my side of town, it's uh, work. It's a lot of work. Um, <laughs> well, you, Culver's, well, when you were in Echo Park, I also would always get lost. Well, it wasn't so much that I would always get lost. I knew how to get to your dad's I just, house. Yeah. But I didn't know how not to end up on Baxter. <laughs> yeah. All, all maps want to take you down Baxter. And they don't tell you that Baxter is the third steepest street in, <laughs> steepest street in America. And cars are not allowed to go up or down it. Uh, what happened to you in the valley? Flats. <laughs> no thinking about nothing. Uh, you're in the bowl. As long as you don't hit the edges of the bowl, you don't have to go up anything. Yeah, I'm in Glendale now. And Glendale is also kind of boringly um, gritty. Oh, it's the valley. All right. That's been our uh, stomp old Hollywood stomping grounds episode for May. Hopefully you watch some black and white movies because of this. Maybe Hollywood Canteen, maybe in a lonely place. And DOA. And DOA. Uh, see you we'll see you at our live show. Yeah. And come say hi to us. We enjoy that. 
like we said, come punch us in the stomach. We love. Please that. don't punch us in the stomach. <laughs> oh, speak for yourself. I'm really. In, no, I'm, I'm really I strong. Can handle, I'm way stronger than Houdini. I was listening to some. I've been listening to an audiobook right now about somebody they called Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, who was a, dete- a female detective who was incredible. It sounds like she was incredible, but it starts off talking about Arthur Conan Doyle and his son died tragically. Yeah, he was obsessed with fairies. Yeah, yeah, that too. But he was also like desperately wanted to uh, talk to his son beyond the grave and believed that he could do that. And I remembered what we learned about yeah, Houdini, Houdini stomping yeah. out anybody who believed in ghosts and in fairies. In particular, I think Arthur Conan yeah, Doyle. He that's was what like, I remember. Your son's dead. Your son's dead. Let him go. But I'm going to live forever because I'm Houdini. <laughs> that was a gut punch to, <laughs> to Arthur ego, Conan Doyle. Yeah. Yes, sorry to go on that aside. Well... <laughs> I don't know how to recover from that. I, we should just go. That's been yet another episode of LA Meekly. Name dropping celebrities like, I'll just pick one at random. I'm Juju Rogers <laughs> since 2013. Don't look up if you're with Fred. Fred Rogers. Her Fred husband. Roger, Fred Rogers. Her husband, yeah. Fred Rogers. <laughs>